This week on Geeksplained, our latest edition of the Geeksplained Spotlight series focuses on a fan-favorite story starring the world's greatest detective. And with a story this iconic, I had to call in some help. So join us as we Geeksplain Batman The Long Halloween. Welcome back to Geeksplain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is the latest edition of the Geeksplain Spotlight series, where we'll be talking about some of the greatest comic book stories to ever grace the shelves of your local comic book shop. We kicked off this series last month with Spider-Man Blue, and this month's edition is Batman The Long Halloween. However, this is going to be different from last month's segment in that I'm not alone for this edition. To talk about The Long Halloween, I brought in a longtime Geeksplained podcast listener and a trusted good brother of the podcast, Andrew Kincaid, talking about tons of stuff that we covered when talking about this story, uh, running the gamut from how we first read this comic to how it's going to be influencing uh, potential stuff going forward, like the Matt Reeves Batman film. Really, really good conversation that we had. But not only that, we're going to be talking about our weekly review segment, including the second episode of Amazon Prime's The Boys, as well as, of course, this week's Comics Countdown. All of that and more to come, but first, let's head into this week's news. Alright guys and gals, we don't have a lot of news to talk about, but the news that we do have to talk about is pretty big. It's pretty big. So, um, we're going to shake up the order a little bit. We've got our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. And uh, I'm going to shake up the order just because there are certain things I want to talk about that are going to take a little bit longer, and I want to kind of save those for the end. So, starting off with comics news. Uh, The comics news is that we have more uh, dark multiverse uh, stuff announced. So earlier this year, it was announced that we are going to get Tales of the Dark Multiverse, which would kind of retell classic uh, DC stories. The first ones we got were The Death of Superman and of Nightfall. Really, really cool stuff. Um, and we now have confirmation that there are two more that are going to be added to the list, that being Infinite Crisis and Blackest Night. I'm really excited about Infinite Crisis because it shows, uh, I want to say his name's Monarch. Um, he's an alternate universe version of Ray Palmer who just is just the worst. Just the worst guy, but he's super duper powerful. Um, but the Blackest Night one I think is really interesting. The cover shows um, basically all of the Blackest Night or the uh, 
the Black Lanterns kind of surrounding and probably draining the life force out of White Lantern Sinestro. So I am super interested to see where that goes. I loved Blackest Night when it came out, and I am really excited for us to dive back into that and see how they shake up the order. Um, I think it's really cool that... Uh, they're taking the time to do these Tales of the Dark Multiverse stories where they're kind of, they're basically what-if stories, but all just the worst-case scenario of each what-if story, so I'll definitely be checking these out for sure. And then also in comics news, we got um, spoilers for the Batman Superman book um, that releases, I think, later this month. Uh, the first issue does anyway, uh, revealing more of the what um, DC is calling the new Secret Six, which are six heroes who have been corrupted by the Batman Who Laughs. These are six heroes who are basically now sleeper agents inside of the DC universe and are going to be instrumental in bringing that universe to its knees. So we got the first confirmation of uh, Jim Gordon, who is canonically the first one turned. Uh, we also do know that at least in the first issue of Batman v or uh, Batman Superman, that uh, spoilers, Billy Batson Shazam is the second hero to be corrupted. And if you don't want any spoilers for this. Uh, for this book, I would probably fast forward maybe like uh, five minutes because I'm going to talk about this for a second. Uh, the next one up that we have, because we have solicitations for a couple more of the heroes that are going to be corrupted. Uh, the first one we have is Hawkman. Hawkman, um, I think, is really interesting because we've been doing... Uh, Hawkman has actually been kind of this, uh, this silent... On this silent ascent throughout uh, DC Universe, or the DC Universe, because he not only had a killer Hawkman series uh, written, and I believe drawn as well by Brian Hitch, but he also was a very important part of the Dark Knight's metal storyline, bringing back Hawkman, him essentially being uh, in the Forge, and all that stuff, so... I'm interested to see how the he gets integrated. Next up, we have uh, Jaime Reyes, the Blue Beetle. This was out of left field for me. I was really surprised by this. Um, I guess partly because Blue Beetle just really isn't one of those characters who is um, given time uh, in a lot of these events, especially the Jaime Reyes. He did get his uh, scarab during the events of Infinite Crisis, but... Since then, he's kind of fallen to the wayside. They kept trying to uh, re-up his stock in the DC Universe with both um, the New 52 as well as Rebirth giving him solo series, but those pretty quickly got canceled. So I'm interested to see where they go with him. Our number five is Supergirl. I am really interested to see what they do with Supergirl because this is this is a big one. Um, kind of on the same level as Jim Gordon, if not, I would say, even higher priority. Uh, Supergirl's a big name for this. We knew that there would be some bombshells, but um, Supergirl's a legacy character who is so integrated into everything that goes on with the Superman books that I'm surprised that they okayed this, uh, especially with her being super popular in her CW TV show and all that stuff. I am 
cautiously optimistic because I don't know what they're going to do with her, uh, how they're going to, uh, I guess, save her if they can be saved. We haven't gotten any confirmation of that. And um, it's going to be interesting to see where they go with these characters. Now, our sixth member hasn't been revealed, but I have a theory. If you look at the original spread, the original image of uh, basically just lining up the DC year of the villain and have there's this giant spread of like a just dozens and dozens of the DC heroes all kind of being moved around like chess pieces by the Batman who laughs and it basically showed all these people who could possibly be corrupted. But um, I think there's something really interesting if you relook at this image. And uh, a couple people have picked up on this, but I really thought that I um, I kind of cracked the code and then I saw everybody else was kind of saying the same thing. So I'm glad I'm not alone, but I uh, figured this out, I like to think. Um, and that is, if you look at this image, there's one thing to take into account if you look at all of the characters who have already been revealed to be... Uh, to be corrupted, they are all either touching their face or their neck in some way. Uh, Jim Gordon's adjusting his glasses. Uh, Supergirl is like holding her hand to her head because she has like a migraine. Blue Beetle has his hand around his throat. Um, Shazam has his uh, hand kind of on his chin. And then Hawkman is touching his face by putting on his helmet. Now there's one other character who has... Uh, who is touching their face, who has not yet been revealed, but I'm sure will be revealed on pretty short order, and that is Troya, Donna Troy, the former Wonder Girl. Um, she was, I think, a lot of people's top pick to be one of the Secret Six, and I'm sure that uh, this has been a long time coming for her, but I'm still really excited for the eventual reveal of that and the reveal of all of these characters that are going to be uh, showing up in this Batman Superman book. Uh, I can't explain to you how excited I am with that Joshua Williamson is going to be writing um, David Marquez is going to be the artist on the project and it is going to push the narrative that Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo have started way way back in uh, Dark Knight's Metal forward and we're going to see just where everybody ends up uh, jumping into miscellaneous news, uh, Sony has officially bought Insomniac. The uh, announcement went out on Monday that Insomniac has been, they didn't specifically say bought, but they said we're now partnering with Sony. But it's pretty plain to see that Sony bought them out and it's, I think, a great uh, acquisition for them in their games division because Insomniac made the highest uh, grossing superhero game of all time with Spider-Man. So this is a great get for them, and it's going to ensure that uh, not just Spider-Man, but Insomniac and everything that comes out of their, um, their workhouse is going to be Sony's. Uh, and then also, speaking of video games, uh, we got uh, Gamescom this week. And today, I'm recording this on Tuesday to release on Wednesday, um, we got the first full gameplay for The Avengers. Uh, I think it's still just called The Avengers, or just Avengers, but uh, it's releasing May 15th of 2020, so next year, and we finally got some gameplay. We got the official reveal at San Diego Comic-Con, and there was a lot of 
uh, a lot of feelings here and there, but uh, we finally got a full gameplay for the prologue, which was already shown in the uh, initial announcement trailer, and it looks interesting. Uh, all of the characters seem to have varying and different uh, combat styles and gameplay. Thor works basically exactly like Kratos in God of War, which I think is cool. Uh, Black Widow has her pistols and almost seems to be much closer to like a uh, third-person shooter. Uh, Iron Man gets to work with verticality and his repulsor blasts. Uh, Hulk is pretty much everything you expect Hulk to be, jumping around, picking up people. There's one point in the gameplay where he's just picking people. He picks up one goon and is just like using him to smack other people with. I hope that's something that you can just do freely is just pick up enemies and just use them as like a bat against other enemies. And then, um, who am I missing here? Cap. So Cap was interesting. I really liked what they uh, did with him. A lot of shield combat, a lot of uh, acrobatic MMA style uh, movement and gameplay. Uh, the shield, I think, looks interesting. It looks like you can combo off of it. Like there's one point where he throws the shield, it bounces off somebody, and then he kicks it back into that person to do like a double tap. Um, so I think that's cool. It does look like there's a certain amount of like callback to the shield like if you hit it on somebody and it doesn't get back to you you can call it back to you which i think is strange but uh we'll just have to see what exactly that entails when it comes to that um overall i'm still waiting for it to really wow me um the gameplay looked solid if not unpolished but this is pretty much all the stuff that you would expect to see from these characters they played all the hits uh the characters play exactly how you expect them to play so i'm interested to see how that evolves uh they also did some graphical tweaks uh black widow has been tweaked a bunch and i don't know if it's just me but everybody looked a little bit more refined a little bit more polished in their um their character models and maybe it's just I don't know, a trick of the light or something, but Cap's costume looked better in the gameplay and the movement than it did in what we saw from the initial trailer. I still can't get behind that helmet. It looks atrocious. And the fact that he still looks like he's wearing um, paintball armor looks really awkward to me. But we have seen that you'll be able to customize your characters, so that will be the first thing that I do in this game. Um, but yeah, so that's it for miscellaneous. Jumping to TV, uh, big announcement this past week was that Kevin Smith and Mark Bernardin have been tapped to do, I guess, kind of a kind of a sequel, kind of a reboot, a revival of the He-Man Masters of the Universe cartoon. This is going to be He-Man Masters of the Universe Revelation. It is going to be a Netflix exclusive being helmed by Kevin Smith and Mark Bernardin. Uh, this is cool. I think this is right up their alley to kind of modernize a classic, an 80s classic, and I think they're going to do really well with it. Uh, unfortunately, one thing that they won't be able to get their hands on is Krypton, because unfortunately it seems that Krypton has been canceled after season two. Uh, this is really unfortunate. I think it's a damn shame because catching up on Krypton, I was blown away by its production value, the stories they were telling, the characters they had, and I'm really sad to see it go. I need to catch up on season two. I watched the season premiere and it was stunning like always, but I'm 
I really uh, I feel for all these people who are now kind of out of work now that they're not doing this project. I hope all of them land on their feet. And if nothing else, uh, this is a prime opportunity for DC Universe to kind of snatch it up because it was on the Sci-Fi Network, um, and you could tell because the production value was high, at least for a DC uh, TV property. And I would be interested to see if it gets picked up elsewhere. Uh, the creators have said that the Lobo spinoff uh, is not just is not dead quite yet, so we'll have to see from there. And then finally on TV, Stephen Amell has uh, been tapped for his first post-Arrow show, and that is a pro-wrestling drama called Heels. I'm really excited. I don't know anything about this, but we will see exactly what that uh, has to do. If you are unaware, Stephen Amell has had numerous uh, steps into the world of professional wrestling, um, and I think this is perfect for him. He's got friends in Cody Rhodes and the uh, Elite and also made an appearance at WWE SummerSlam a few years ago. So this is right up his alley and I think he's going to do really well with this. Now jumping into the film news, our final bit for the news this week. Uh, some big stuff. First off, uh, Birds of Prey has announced that it is doing some major reshoots. Um, it's been said, you know, there have been conflicting reports from... Uh, some sources saying that these are reshoots to really change up a lot of what the studio didn't like about the film. And then there are also reports that are saying that it's just for the action, the action pieces where they just really want to revamp some of the fighting and make it a little bit more, um, I would say, uh, cool. <laughs> Uh, to put it lightly, um, they really want to improve them, and they brought in the director of John Wick, uh, I want to say John Wick 2 and John Wick 3, uh, really excited about this, he knows his way around action, and he's going to do really well, so looking forward to this. Um, some not super great stuff that I'm, I can't say I'm looking forward to, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home is getting a re-release with, from what has been reported, is 5 to 10 additional minutes of footage. I don't like this. I don't like this. This should have been in the initial release. Why even film it? Why even put it in there to, I don't know, get more money? Um, why don't you just put it in there and have it be a good part of a good film? Uh, Far From Home has been probably one of the most divisive Spider-Man films since the Amazing Spider-Man film franchise. So I um, I can't get behind this. I can't get behind what Sony's choosing to do. Um, first, we knew that they took off like f you know 10 to 15 minutes of footage to make it a uh, Blu-ray extra called um, Peter's To Do List or whatever. Uh, just so that they could have an extra on the home release, even though it would have really balanced out how not great that first act was. And then now they're doing this, possibly including that uh, that short in there, uh, which should have been in there from the beginning. I don't care if it made it longer. I don't care if it you know, didn't fit for uh, flow, but I'm just, ugh, I'm irritated. And then we get to... Um, the big film story of the day, which is going to make me even more irritated, if you can't already tell from my tone, because Sony uh, and Marvel have officially parted ways. 
concerning Spider-Man. Um, I'm looking at... I first got this uh, sent to me by... Uh, friend Spider-Man apparently is going to be leaving the MCU or uh, something close to that. Uh, Deadline has reported that Marvel Studios is set to part ways with Sony's Spider-Man franchise. Uh, essentially, this is going to remove Peter Parker from the MCU. I don't know how they're going to write him off. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, Peter was set to play a big role in Phase 4 and beyond being a member of the Avengers. But um, apparently, from what I'm reading, because I have the, uh, the article set up right here, um, it looks like it really comes down to money. Uh, Sony has had the right to Spider-Man for... God, we'll just say too long. We'll just say too long. Um, and then in 2015, to give you some background, Sony entered into an agreement with Marvel Studios to share the character. That's what brought him into uh, Captain America's Civil War super late in the game, introduced him to the MCU, kept him in there for Infinity War and Endgame, and then uh, following up with uh, Homecoming and Far From Home. Um, apparently... Neither Sony nor Disney shared much of, if any, box office grosses from each other's use of the Spider-Man character. So Sony didn't get anything from Infinity War, uh, Civil War, and uh, Endgame, while it doesn't look like Disney got any from Homecoming and Far From Home because they were, of course, produced and uh, released by Sony. Far From Home actually just crossed a billion dollars for Sony. Um, it's uh, it's frustrating because it looks like, from what I'm reading here, uh, Disney wanted to uh, split future Spider-Man movies. We're talking just the Spider-Man movies. 50-50 uh, with a co-financing arrangement, which also meant a 50-50 split in the profits. Uh, Sony said no. So Disney said fine, uh, and then just took Kevin Feige Marvel Studios off of Sony's uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man and kicked the character out of the MCU. I don't know how I feel about this. Oh yeah, I do. I'm frustrated. I'm really frustrated that, of course, corporate greed is uh, just screwing over not just the character but fans of that character for a lot of people people that i know and i talk to tom holland is now the definitive version of that character for them and they are now being crushed by this um and then you know in a thematic you know uh, fictional narrative tony stark you know got the whole idea to in endgame decided to throw away his family and everything that he'd gained for someone who is now not even going to be part of the Avengers. Um, I don't know what exactly is going to happen here. Apparently, negotiations are still ongoing. But as of right now, Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios have been pulled out of the uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man franchise as producers, which means that they're uh, effectively taking Spidey out of the MCU, at least this version of Spidey. Um, I don't know exactly what that means for the long term of this character, whether Sony is just going to scrap him and then go with a new Spider-Man. We left off with a pretty huge cliffhanger in Far From Home 
with uh, Peter Parker's identity being revealed to the world and everything going with that. I'm just... Ah, I'm so frustrated because it just... As a fan who loves this stuff, it's like... I don't... I want all of this to be under the Marvel umbrella. That's why I was excited about the Fox merger. Um, there's, of course, the pragmatic, practical part of me who also has just an inkling of what happens in the business world that just doesn't want a monopoly that Disney is now representing having acquired uh, Fox Studios. But at the same time, just as that kid who wanted all of the uh, wanted all the toys in the sandbox, like it's frustrating. It really is frustrating. I don't know why the deal had to change in the first place. It seemed like both of them were benefiting pretty freaking well. Um, from the deal that they had, Sony was making money, Disney was making money, I don't know what the issue was, um, I get that they weren't, you know, getting the money from each other's releases of the films, but that's negligible, in the grand scheme of things, that's negligible, if Disney was pissed off that, uh, they weren't getting any of the 1.1 billion that, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home grossed, hey, Guys, I don't know if you know this, but you own the top three films that of gross money of all time. Just the highest box office gross. They own them all. Avengers Endgame. It's the highest grossing film of all time. Disney owns that. Why do you need more money that you already have? It just, it blows my mind. I don't understand it. It's its frustrating. It's really frustrating as a fan who reads these comics, who adores these characters, who waits patiently uh, every year to see a late night or an opening day showing for these characters and to see them be dicked around by studios who are just chasing the almighty dollar. its It sucks. It's frustrating. It's really irritating. Um... Ah, I'm getting fired up about this, but I'm pissed off because it's just you invest all of this into this character basically saying, hey, this is the future of the franchise. You better keep an eye on this guy. And then you say, oh, wait, we're going to take him away because of money is just it's uh, it's 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 disheartening. It's frustrating as a fan to see this kind of thing happen. So um, I'll keep a close eye on this. Like I said, uh, discussions are apparently still ongoing, and I'll keep you guys updated on what transpires out of that. But that is it for this week's news segment. Um, highs and lows, as you can see. It's a, it's a week of highs and lows here. And um, we will just have to see how this story develops. But uh, for now, let's jump into a very special episode a very special main course the chef special if you will the entree of this episode this is going to be a long episode i can already tell you because this is um a conversation with a very close friend of mine his name is andrew kincaid he's going to be joining the podcast for the very first time longtime listener longtime collaborator on the podcast as well he has sent me numerous ideas for podcasts that in some way, shape, or form made their way into the podcast. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation just uh, talking everything and anything having to do with Batman The Long Halloween. Uh, we had a very long conversation. Um, 
just talking about everything under the sun whether it comes to the creative team behind it how we first read the book uh, how it's going to be influencing stories going forward including matt reeves batman so uh strap in stay tuned for after the jump for an in-depth discussion on batman the long halloween Alright, ladies and gentlemen, so this week's episode we're going to be focusing, it's part of our new Geek Explain Spotlight segment, and for this one, I thought I'd bring in a little bit of help. It was a very special episode because we're finally being joined by a longtime listener to the podcast, very good friend of mine, Andrew Kincaid. Andrew, how are you doing? Hello. Oh, I'm doing fantastic, Eric. So, the book that we are talking about today, I kind of gave you the option, what you wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. And let us all know what book you wanted to talk about. I want to take a special look at Batman Long Halloween. Which I guess you would know if you clicked on this podcast you saw the title. But what we're talking about today, we're going to be diving into Long Halloween. Uh, last month we did a spotlight on Batman, Batman, Spider-Man <laughs> Blue. And this month we are sticking with the Jeff Loeb Tim Sale train this wasn't intentional this just happened with Long Halloween now Andrew what do you remember when you first read Long Halloween I do it was actually last month when we decided to do the topic on Long Halloween <laughs> that was the first time you read that, <laughs> that was the book. very that was the very first time I decided to finally sit down and read it it's I you know it's funny this whole year I've been giving uh, things that I just threw away the option to re- to giving them a chance the first time. Okay, I'm Machine Gun Kelly. I want to give you an apology. <laughs> I want to apologize. You are a fantastic artist. <laughs> and Long Halloween is the same thing. Hang on the outside, Ooh. it's on the outside, it's you. a it's a little bit a little bit janky looking. Little <laughs> art style is not as appeasing as I first was initially looked at, and character design was very. It's a, what's a nice word to say? It was very, very interesting and intriguing. <laughs> but it wasn't until I actually finally sat down and gave it a shot that I finally start to see for how good it was and how well that art style really hooks you and looks. Right. For example, every time they do who, uh, the Calendar Man, right. I thought it really highlighted how creepy and how dark Super and how a little twisted oh, the book yeah. is. Well, and that was the first kind of... Um time that take on the character was really uh, made, giving Mm -hmm. it more of like a Hannibal Lecter kind of deal. But, big news here already, first time guest on Geeksplained says that Machine Gun Kelly is as good as Batman Long Halloween. I'm sticking with it. (laughs) I've lost the audience already. We are an Eminem household here, sir. But, um... Get off my lawn. (laughs) Anyway. Um, So, um, let's talk about, before we jump into everything... Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Batman, because yes. everyone knows Batman is yes. 
kind of the focal point of this story. Batman has been around for a very long time. Andrew, do you remember the first time, your first encounter with the Batman? I do. Well, my very first encounter with the Batman was the animated series from nice. the 90s. Yes. Bruce Same. Tim's amazing work and Paul Dini, of course, and mm-hmm. so many other talented artists that gave us a rendition of the character that I think today will always stand uniquely in the test of time. Right. It itself takes so much uh, liberties with what it does and how it tells its stories. Lots of liberties, you're right. That it makes it timeless in the fact that you, it's not a certain version in its own way. Right? It right. shines in so many other areas because there's computers, there's you know cars from the 40s, there's telephones that you have to, it looks like you have to actually turn to die mm-hmm. on a number. And so in this almost sort of sub time space they, yeah. they were able to make something really really timeless yeah it really it is like a time in a bottle with the neo-noir art style mm-hmm. like how very just you're absolutely right it seems like a melding of different time frames because mm-hmm. they have like analog phones but they've got you know blimps and cars that can go you know 700 miles per hour with jet right. engines so they've got all kinds of stuff and that really I think um, influenced a lot of the Batman takes going forward. Absolutely. Now, speaking about the long Halloween itself, where would you say this ranks for Batman stories? Would you say like a top five, a top ten? Oh, easily, easily top five. I would okay. even say top three. Or really? Oh, okay. I would put it at least number two or number three. Great. Cool. I mean, the pers- personally, I'm always going to have my own number one, but long Halloween... I mean, impressed me not only to the factor in that it's a good Batman story it's just a good comic book story in right. its own way there are some things that I don't necessarily like about it but mm-hmm. of course we'll get into that at later on absolutely but I do think it is very a very very phenomenal story mm-hmm. and it is such a great take on Batman and Jeff Loeb's writing shines so well in this because mm-hmm. I think he has a good understanding of the character's voice right and this book book especially highlights that which is a wonderful segue into the first talking point for this book which is the creative team Mm -hmm. it is written by jeff loeb with art by tim sale they are like batman and robin if you will they (laughs) how much they collaborate uh they did such stories as spider-man blue that we talked about last week they did also uh superman for all seasons one of my Mm. personal favorite superman stories um Daredevil Yellow, Hulk Gray, uh, the sequel to this, Dark Victory, and so many other books. Um, do you have a favorite Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale story? Uh, that team specifically, I would definitely say it's uh, Long Halloween. Okay, um, cool, 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 cool. So these two work together really, really well, and you can tell because of how frequently they are put together on projects. We don't see a lot of this nowadays. Uh, There aren't a whole lot of crews that really stick together across multiple projects. True. Uh, Some of the ones nowadays, uh, Tom King, Mitch Jarrods. Scott uh, Snyder, Greg Capullo is probably- Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, absolutely. I I would definitely say in comic book pairings and comic book teams, these two are right now at an equal match and creative-wise. Absolutely. I would even honestly throw uh, Mark Wade, Chris Somney up there. Absolutely. That pair is really good as well. Mm -hmm. Now, for this specifically, what do you... um, 
What do you know about Jeff Loeb? What do you like about Jeff Loeb? What's your uh, experience with that writer? Well, Jeff Loeb has always impressed me as a writer. I feel like he's great um, understanding of characters. Mm-hmm. He really makes their emotions and makes the, their thought patterns shine greatly in his story. Right. My favorite piece that Jeff Loeb has ever written is, is a Wolverine Evolution. Wolverine Evolution. I'm not familiar yes. with that comic. Tell me. What's what's that about? Uh, Wolverine Evolution is basically a it is a fo- it is focuses mainly on the Wolverine and Sabretooth uh, a relationship. Classic. We get to see oh and it and it's amazing how well Jeff Loeb understands and that the, those two characters dynamic. It is just so brutal at times on because Wolverine is probably one of the the single character I think the single character has the most tragic backstory. Because Absolutely. so much has happened to him in a, in a time of two hundred plus years, yeah, and there's a lot of room for bad bad stuff to go down in that. Mm-hmm. And Sabretooth has always found a way to keep ruining his life, right? And True. I'm not going to spoil that story because I think everyone should but give that 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 book a, a shot. Yeah, I'm interested. I'll definitely be checking that out. But all the different characters who pop who pop up and how they play a factor in Wolverine's life and. Jeff Loeb's my favorite thing about Jeff Loeb's style is that he can do inner monologues so perfectly. Mm. I don't think there's a better inner monologuist who writes so well like Jeff Loeb does. I absolutely agree. I mean, with the um, Spider-Man Blue is almost in like completely uh, inner monologue, even though it is technically just a narration. Mm -hmm. But he does. He has such a great job at framing dialogue, framing characters, and framing situations 100%. that it makes it really clear and easy to follow as a story. Okay. Completely now, agree. Now, there's another book that we wanted to talk about, we were talking about off uh, off mic earlier, that um, has been in the news recently, which is Batman Hush. Yes. Batman Hush came out, the animated film adaptation uh, came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, you heard me review it on the podcast before. My mini review was, <laughs> it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, Andrew, you haven't seen Batman Hush yet, the movie. I, I personally have not seen Batman Hush, and I don't know if I'm going to <laughs> be really, really taking the effort to go see it. Now, the reason I also wanted to bring this up is because... Um, Lots of people look at Batman Hush and uh, Jeff Loeb's kind of uh, relationship with the character as being something like really classic, really iconic. The reason that I bring this up is because you have a hot take on Batman Hush. Yes. Drop it on us. The the comic book controversial opinion that I, I have is that I don't... Hush is probably one of my least favorite comic books. Okay. And which is so sad because... As I already gushed over or Jeff Loeb, how much I love his, his understanding of characters and his, <laughs> right. and his writing style with inner monologues and how he does such an amazing job of making in each voice of said character that he writes for for long periods of time mm-hmm. feel different than other pe- people's or from different from other or characters. I mean, when I read Wolverine or when I read Spider-Man, when I read Batman, these three characters all sound different. Right. And that shines really well in Hush. And I was always thinking when I first read it, it is that this sounds like Batman is talking mm-hmm. but the overall story 
did not impress me or did not sell me and I, and I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Well, it's a really hard book to be like an entry point when it comes to Batman because yeah. you, you have to know your stuff when you're re- like the original story. You have to know yeah. about the death of Jason Todd. You yep. have to know about the relationship with Nightwing, his yep. relationship with Superman, yep. um, all this complicated backstory with Catwoman. Like yeah. you have to really know your stuff. Um, but what I think is really interesting when it comes to these two stories, Long Halloween and Hush, is that they do have a lot of parallels. Oh, they absolutely do. The idea behind uh, basically it being a whodunit, trying mm-hmm. to solve this mystery of who is Hush, who mm-hmm. is the holiday killer. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there was a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, and, wit- and how that kind of differentiated between the two stories? I would, I personally would actually give that Hush is the wrong way to do it and Long Halloween is the right way to do it. Okay, how so? Well, we you look at the both stories and both of them have, have many villains pop up throughout different points Absolutely. in the story. Uh, such people be, being Joker her, and Poison Ivy are both, both in similar books. Catwoman mm-hmm. and shares her time with, with Batman and and of course Batman and, and Robin and all these different characters in the Bat family. Right. But what Hush does poorly is that it feels more like highlights and these things that are just mm. around when it feels very natural when the villains in Long Halloween pop up individually each time. Okay. It feels like when Joker is upset that the press and, and all the intention isn't on him and because right. of this new villain is in town, it makes sense on why he's there. He wants to make a show of it. He wants to make a big spectacle. Yeah. But when he shows up in Hush, he's kind of just in an alley, just kind of <laughs> tweaking out. and Yeah, you're, fair. And it's just this moment of like, wait, Joker's here now. Okay. I was just getting over the fact that Poison <laughs> Ivy had taken over Superman. Yeah. Which brings even more questions on how that happened, mm. but don't get answered. So, and of course, again, everyone has can have their own opinion, and absolutely. this is just mine. And it's no disrespect to Jim Lee or Jeff Loeb, who, you know, hardworking individuals, of course... I just didn't like it, like what what got turned out. Now, one of the big uh, differences between those books mm-hmm. is the art style. Mm-hmm. Jim Lee to Tim Sale. And Com- and again, completely on two different spectrums. Completely different. Completely both different. celebrated. Oh, absolutely. Um, and but, both uniquely different and both shine in different areas. Absolutely. Now, for Tim Sale, uh, you're familiar with his work, obviously. You've yes. read some of the books that he's had. Yes. Do you have a fa- favorite Tim Sale book? Yes, I love his take on Daredevil Yellow. Nice, and good pick. And Eric knows this, but I absolutely I love the character Daredevil. I have mm-hmm. a Daredevil inspired tattoo on me that I'm never going to be getting rid of or covering up in any way. <laughs> I, yeah. However, I absolutely despise the look of the yellow and red no! Daredevil suit. It's I love his favorite that costume. <laughs> the yellow Daredevil's the best Daredevil. Uh, uh. Everyone take a second, pause the episode, and go Google Daredevil in his yellow costume, and then you'll be on either one side. Hold on. Okay. Welcome back. Okay. So, so you see what I mean, though? Do you see what I mean? But do you see what I mean? No, but but this book is what, what made me see it, though. Okay. It's what finally made me appreciate it. It brought it in a very unique way, because, of course, mm. my brain would have gone with Daredevil Red. But right. it's a way to celebrate the origins of the character, mm-hmm. especially in that book. It ties into his, like, the, his actual costume ties into his origin story mm-hmm. in such a unique and beautiful way that makes you even more attached to it. Right. And it's those little, little details 
that works so well. And I thought that Jeff or Tim Sale's character or character work with Daredevil was probably some of my favorite looks in that it was both dark and menacing, mm -hmm. but also fun because Daredevil is supposed to be fun at the same time. Right. And it felt very grounded and, and almost, almost very, very, very surreal at times at times. Well, and what Tim Sale does really well uh, is, of course, making his art style unique. There's a lot mm -hmm. of like harsh angles mm -hmm. and very stylized uh, faces, a lot of art deco uh, yes. backgrounds and sets and all that stuff. Um, and I think, honestly, that really shines in a noir story like Long Halloween. Absolutely. How, how you said stylized is really the perfect word that I would say mm -hmm. for, for Tim Sale's work. Yeah, he's one of the most stylized artists I think I've ever read or mm -hmm. just witnessed ever. Um, so now that we've got kind of the background into Long Halloween, let's talk about the book itself. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about the art style. Uh, it's very, like we said, very angular. This Batman is as creepy and imposing as I think you can do with this character. Absolutely. He's got the super long bat ears. His uh, gloves almost seem to have like claws mm -hmm. on the ends of the fingers. A lot of his body is shrouded in his cape. So he looks like a demon. Very, very gothic. Very, Absolutely. Very, and, and you're right. He looks like this otherworldly monster that came out of the shadows. Mm -hmm. It really kind of highlights that city folklore feel to him that he is the batman right but at the same time he's also using he's using the silver age mm -hmm. costume mm -hmm. the blue with the gray and the bright yellow oval but he somehow makes that menacing yeah which i really really like it's, it's incredibly impressing and really really makes the character stand out in such a unique way absolutely like, and going back to the hush way in which jim lee has that almost I don't want to say Saturday morning feel to it, mm -hmm. but it is very, very does bright and colorful, and the lines are so detailed in. And it right. feels, feels very, like very classic comic booky. While this, like you said, is very Art Deco mm -hmm. and bring, brings out, out this atmospheric like quality to it. Right, and we see all the time different trends going through like comics, uh, comics industry, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, bright colors or mm -hmm. specific character palettes. But what's nice about Tim Sale's art is you can read any book that he's done with Jim Sale at any time and it feels timeless. I kind agree. of like the Batman animated series I agree. because of the amount of stuff that went into it. Mm -hmm. Now, Talking about the art, we have to talk about the villains. Absolutely. Because they are just as stylized, if not more so, mm -hmm. than Batman. The Joker that he has here has uh. a smile that is bigger than the rest of his head. And I don't know how that works, he looks... but it's every single panel. <laughs> his mouth is larger than the rest of his head. It's, it's truly terrifying. It's very almost coward... Cow uh, courage the Cowardly Dog yes. feel to it. Absolutely. That sort of both cartoony effect, but then very, very creepy and very, very disturbing. Right. I still sometimes, I still, I remember watching it as a kid, I still have nightmares every so often about Muriel's brother. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That creepy, creepy guy, blonde hair. Look this yep. up. Courage the Cowardly Dog, Muriel's brother. It, he is the most unsettling person to look at. And it gives me nightmares. And and both characters have the same effect in that they are always smiling. Rictus grin, like, but it's 
to the point that it's unsettling. Every single panel with the Joker or in this comic, he is continuously smiling. Mm-hmm. Like in each and every single, it's it's disturbing and it's unsettling just to flip through the book and see that twisted grin and then right. beady eyes. Well, and then they also do really well at making those classic Batman villains look so distinctly and tonally different from the mob aspect, which is a I heavy agree. part of this book. It is, and it's really amazing how. You can really see how Jeff Loeb, I think in this book especially, how well he does in both comic books but also in movies. Right. There, The entire opening to the this book feels like it was just straight ripped out of The Godfather. Absolutely. Like it's very, very heavily, in, seems like it's influenced by that first opening. But the two opening scenes are so oh, parallel similar and that's right. it's an Italian mobster at a wedding. Carmine and, Falcone would yeah. not be out of place next to Marlon Brando in that film. Not at all. Oh, not at all. And oh, what a missed wh- opportunity. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Man. Anyway, but like going off of that, like in these specific character designs, what really struck me reading through this book again was the design for Poison Ivy. Yes. Now, Poison Ivy's design is unlike anything I've ever seen with her character. I agree. Where, I mean, we've seen the pale white skin with the dark green lips. Mm-hmm. We saw that out, out of the uh, new Batman adventures. But her look in this book is so striking. There's a panel where she's sitting across from Batman feel free to look this up there's this panel where she's sitting across from bruce wayne at a dinner table Mm -hmm. and it's almost like her hair is a cloud of vines just constantly like growing out of her and reaching across this Mm -hmm. table it's it's very um medusa of the inhumans in that way where her hair just like just takes up space in a room and i love that design i i do too and i and i this may be you know I enjoy the that he for, just got rid of the red hair hair aspect to it. And, Absolutely. And brought out more floral patterns and more fauna to come suddenly mm-hmm. erupting out from her, almost like the, this being of nature. Her. Right, which makes that reveal when Catwoman opens his suit jacket to find all the vines just... It almost looks like he's just... His body has become the vines and exactly. he just has his head perched on top. Like, it's disturbing it is to look at it is. speaking of catwoman i love this look for her do you it's so ridiculous uh, it's so it's so it's a bright purple bright purple cat suit literally cat suit in any shape and form because it has whiskers on it it does and this it's... was one of my favorite parts of the uh arkham city game was mm. that catwoman got a couple different uh alternate costumes one of which being her animated series costume the gray with the black but mm-hmm. her other one is the long <laughs> halloween costume oh, it's got this man. long she actually has a tail she does in this costume sometimes like artists no will sense. so it, she's a cat she's a cat um so, sometimes artists will um draw her whip that she uses hanging off her hip in a way to evoke the image of a tail but this jeb or uh, tim sale rather just goes straight for the throat and gives her an actual uh. tail <laughs> these giant cat ears off of her mask and whiskers and then these thigh-high boots and these clawed gloves that go all the way up to her bicep it is one of the most stylized and i know i keep saying that word but it's so it's, appropriate it, for tim sale it really one really of the is most stylized looks that she's ever had yeah especially when we look nowadays where it's um 
It's very uh, utilitarian, very tactical. Yeah, I was going to say, very, very tactical, very, very, very uniform-like. Right, and I think one of the things, and we'll, of course, be touching on this later, um, that I really liked about her costume in the Dark Knight Rises film is that it evoked both that version both the long halloween version her tactical version that mm-hmm. she has more nowadays as well as the uh batman 66 the eartha kit that's right style bat uh or catwoman costume with the mask and the goggles that kind of evoke the cat ears now, it really was impressive how dark knight rises like that catwoman suit did everything all in one absolutely in a very minimalistic fashion which is the right. most impressive out of it and i i for the life of me don't know why they haven't incorporated that goggle aspect more I, because I it's too. genius then that's that's what we got out of um arkham city which was so nice right. oh you're you, you're absolutely right mm-hmm. you're absolutely right now going from the art style let's jump into the story so the basic premise of this uh, before we jump into everything, I know we've already said stuff. Yeah. This is going to be a <laughs> massive spoiler warning. If you yes. haven't read this book, do yourself a favor. Do the comic enthusiast in your soul a favor and read this story. It is incredible. It's, I think, 12 issues? 13. Eight, 13 issues. 13 issues. So 13... That's hilarious. Is so it? 13 issues total. Um, you can find them in... A hundred different editions collected, whether it's on Comixology, in a hardcover, paperback, whatever you want to find, definitely pick this up. Now, this story centers around basically a year in -hmm. the life of the Dark Knight, starting on, of course, the Halloween season. Yep. And it deals with Batman and Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent, who is not yet Two-Face, trying to solve the mystery of the Holiday Killer. Now, this holiday killer is a cold, calculated character who always um, commits murder on specific holidays. But he's not like the Calendar Man, where the Calendar Man is more of a um, uh, serial killer kind of driven by this obsessive need to commit crimes on specific days of the year. Mm -hmm. Holiday killer is not driven in that way. At least that's kind of what we come to uh, know with the character. Exactly. This story also features kind of the rise of supervillains in Gotham, which I think is a really interesting story beat. Yes. And watching the criminal underworld shape and morph and go from the very mob kind of background Mm -hmm. into the more uh, roguish uh, Gotham that we know in modern media. And I think what really highlights this story for me is the friendship between Batman, Jim Gordon, and Harvey Dent. Yes, it, it really kind of shows this amazing team that's created together. You have Batman who's on the front lines getting into all the places that uh, the police can't get into. Right. And then you have this lawyer who's working on, on everything in the background, the paperwork, making sure all the criminals get put away. And then Jim Gordon, who's of course in charge of the entire police force putting away the bad guys that need to be right and having really that man on the street kind of perspective when it comes to that team exactly because batman comes at it from an outside the law perspective Mm -hmm. um harvey really goes into almost like uh private eye mode at certain points in this trying to figure out uh who the character is while jim has to deal with the restraints of being inside the law and representing that branch of it exactly and his contributions may not be as um 
as widely remembered in the story as Batman or Harvey's. That's fair. Especially as the story really starts to ramp up. No, it, it the shift in focal point really changes to mainly Batman and Harvey. Because once the uh, holiday killer starts to really kind of ramp up his um, his killings, mm-hmm. you really start to see this shift in other characters. Absolutely. Especially when... Um, during the story, Batman is also dealing with his dual persona of Batman and Bruce Wayne, as he always mm-hmm. is. That's but great. this story really introduces the aspect of Selina Kyle in yes. his life. Selina Kyle and, and Bruce Wayne uh, begin kind of this dating process throughout the story, mm-hmm. while at the same time they're clashing yeah. as Bruce Wayne and or as Batman and Catwoman. And one of the things that I think is so interesting in this is anytime that we normally see this kind of relationship, mm-hmm. Batman already knows that Catwoman is Selina Kyle. Right. So it's almost really refreshing to see neither of them really knowing the other secret identity and kind of being able to uh, let their, I guess, human personas kind of blossom with each other kind of in that ignorance. I agree. And it's funny how their their secret identity relationship grows and really works so well is because both of them are running off, off to go be the the other one and then flirt with each other or still absolutely the they meet at a ball basically at a gala mm. that is hosted by the um is it by the falcones or the maronis one of them it's one of the, the um, families yeah they meet they dance they have a great time and then later on in the night selena as catwoman sneaks back in mm-hmm. and tries to you know break open the safe and steal valuables batman catches her and they clash yep. and we as readers know that these characters are who they are. But part of that dramatic irony is that they don't know. Exactly. And we get all of this really cool parallels when it comes to their fighting, almost mm-hmm. paralleling, oh, paralleling, almost <laughs> uh, really matching up with their earlier, uh, their dancing yep. and all of their other interactions throughout the story. Now, the big... Uh, the big through line through all of this as well is Harvey Dent and his yes. wife Gilda. Yes. So they are, I would say, just as much the main character of the story as Batman is. Oh, absolutely. Because they are, at the same time as Batman is dealing with the more criminal element, mm-hmm. the more uh, roguish supervillain element throughout this story, Harvey is on the ground level. Harvey yes. is on the ground floor dealing with the mob element. At one point, yes. they bomb his house. Exactly. They blow up his house in an attempt to both kill him and get him off of the case that's building towards the big Gotham mm-hmm. crime families. And it's really interesting to see the legal um, proceedings that he has to get through to do any real work. Definitely. And how he, and we get to see the frustration that comes out of him. Right, because sometimes we forget that while Batman is running around on the rooftops, you know, there are guys who have to work within the system dealing with exactly. how Batman works. That's one of the things I love about uh, Gotham Central, yes. which is a very, very underrated comic series that mm-hmm. if you haven't checked out, I recommended it during our um, Best Crime Comics episode. You definitely need to pick this up, especially if you enjoy Gotham City, mm-hmm. that kind of vibe, anything in the Bat family, lots of lots of crossover with that with this story um you get to see how the criminal element not only um builds and changes but how they react to that change yes the mob bosses are terrified of the joker and all of these new characters Mm -hmm. that are popping up in gotham 
it's it's funny to see these um, just horrible people, all these mobsters and you know these criminals suddenly get broken out of their comfort zone, right? Because these big theatrical, old, just just villain, you can't even call them criminals. They're they are in themselves just villains to be explored and run rampant through the city and do what however they're going to do when the mobsters are traditional. All. They have right. their own way of just like, oh, this is our territory. This is what we do. This is what we bring in. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you have all these colorful characters flip all that over them and they don't know how to react. Right. And that inability to um, accept change really yes. affects a lot of these characters and is kind 100%. of the theme that goes through mm-hmm. not just this story, but really Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's uh, collaborations as a whole. Yes. This inability, this. Um, this clash between moving on and staying rooted in the past because mm-hmm. that's kind of what the mob represents. Uh, the Falcone and uh, Maroni crime families represent mm. old school Gotham, old yes. school crime. And these new villains represent change, mm-hmm. this change that is inevitable, mm-hmm. this change that is coming at you, you don't have a choice, and you can either get with it or you're going to be taken out. Yes. And watching that change also i think changes the um not just the color palette of the book but also the art as a whole because you get very grounded gritty earth tones Mm -hmm. when anytime the uh crime families are front and center but then when the villains show up when joker shows up and poison ivy shows up you get these new colors introduced into it which feel really out of place when they first debut but as the book continues on just like gotham you become more acclimated and more used to this otherworldly color palette with these characters coming Mm -hmm. in and very well said thank you and one of i think one of the one of my favorite um rogues that shows up in this even though it's such a minor (laughs) uh character in the grand scheme of the story is the riddler yeah. Now, he's brought in by one of the heads of the crime families to try and deduce who <laughs> this uh, holiday killer is. And he basically... It's kind of implied that he knows. Yeah. That he's figured it out. But when he leaves the crime family's uh, place, holiday killer sends a message to him right quick. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful <laughs> little panel where you see just gun uh, bullet holes just... Uh, framing him on a wall. A little bit of an outline. Right, as an outline. And he's just standing there, like, not knowing what to do. And afterwards, he's the only person who's crossed paths with the Holiday Killer and lived. And the only reason why he lived is because the holiday that he was... that the Holiday Killer performed all this on was April Fool's. Which is so, so cool. So, so perfect. So we go across, during the course of this story, we go across Halloween, Mm -hmm. Christmas... New Year's Day, Valentine's Day, um, 4th of July, and there's Labor Day, I think? I think it's almost, it's a bunch of different holidays. Labor so, Day, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think if there are any others off the top of my head, but they basically, every single issue is kind of framed around mm. that holiday going through. Mother's and Father's Day. Mother's and Father's Day, absolutely. So you get to see all that and how they relate to the uh, killings that take place on that day. Mm-hmm. And then you also, which I find really, really cool, you also get to see this 
underlying story, this kind of, um, this descent into madness that Harvey Dent goes through across these holidays, because every single holiday always kind of wraps up or ends with Harvey Dent getting back into bed with his wife, Gilda. Yes, going back to normal life, going away from crime, going away from the darkness, and get to slowly see how the darkness starts creeping in more and more. And you see how it affects him more and more and more throughout each issue. So by the time near the end, we're talking about him bringing evidence home mm-hmm. and like trying to solve the case at home and not being able to get himself away from it. Exactly. And through this, um, through this plot, you kind of get this idea that wait a second, Harvey's like neck deep in this. Could he possibly be the holiday killer? Mm-hmm. And this story really does a great job at getting you to question that. It does. Because anytime that something bad happens, it's immediately followed up by Harvey Dent showing up to his wife. Mm -hmm. So it's like, where is he coming from? What is he doing? What is his uh, connection to these killings? Yes. And as the story goes further on, you start to understand what goes on with that. But Harvey's big character-changing moment comes later on in the story when I want to say it was Maroney coming in to testify. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, against the Falcons, and he's slipped, you know, this vial by one of the uh, plants that he put in the police mm-hmm. department. And Harvey's doing his cross examination, and you know, going with this uh, testimony. And then all of a sudden, we get that classic moment yes. where Maroney throws the acid in Harvey's face. The original origin to, to Two Faces brought in and worked in so organically into right. the story scarring him forever mm-hmm. and i think what's really interesting about this and this hadn't really been done before i would say the uh just knocking things over here <laughs> uh i would say it hasn't really been done or at least not that i can remember off the top of my head this way before the uh, i'm trying to think whether Long Halloween came out before or after the animated series. I want to say after. You might have. I'm not sure either. Let's... We're fact-checking here. We are. Let's... I'm trying to do my best. I'm sure someone listening right now is like, You idiot! It came out! <laughs> Insert the answer here. How can you both not know this? Right. So, I mean, give Andrew a little bit of credit. He just read it for the first time last month. I did. But, <laughs> but It was a good um, month, though. But for this, um, for this specific story, what year did it come out? Uh, both 1996 and 1997. Okay, so... So the animated it, it, series it came co- first. So yeah, so we didn't really get a story that got you invested in Harvey as a character before the animated series. Yes. Before that, Two-Face was kind of your run-of-the-mill, oh yes, we get him, um, he used to be an attorney, double-face, double-stuff. He didn't really pop up in the Silver Age or in... Not really, and when he did, it was just to serve kind of the same purpose as all of Batman's other Silver Age villains, which were just, hey, I'm going to be wacky, and I have a gimmick. The 1960s TV series had a plan for him, but it never got used. Right, and he was supposed to eventually show up in the Tim Burton films. Right. Now, the Batman the Animated Series, I think, was the first time, at least for me, mm-hmm. that I really got invested in Harvey Dent as a character. Yes. Because what that show does so well, among a whole bevy of other things, oh, absolutely, um, really gets you invested in Harvey Dent as Bruce Wayne's friend. Yes. For multiple episodes. There's yes. an episode where he dates Poison Ivy, yeah. <laughs> and you get really invested in this character. Mm-hmm. And then... 
after you're invested in this character, then they put the fall of Harvey Dent into Two-Face in there. Really just hammering that point home that this is someone who used, who could have been the greatest fall from grace. Once again, Bruce Wayne has the unfortunate reality that people will, will he will always lose somebody in right. his life, or the people he gets close to are and never he can't, safe. can't save everyone. No. And so this story really also builds upon that getting yeah. invested in harvey as a character mm-hmm. his home life with gilda and really coming up to the point where he is scarred forever and yeah you see that that's kind of the breaking point for him he's mm-hmm. been slowly teetering on the edge throughout this whole story and then this really breaks him and it's one of those things where if you know anything about batman or the character harvey dent and you go into this story it's, you kind of start to think, oh, I know that he's eventually going to be, become Two-Face. Right. But there are moments where you do kind of forget, and Harvey he just Harvey Dent, the character, or really shines well, uh, right. and really separates himself from that, that when it finally does happen, and you go, oh, that's right. Oh, no. Oh, not like this. Yeah, and that's honestly... Um, did you ever play the, uh, the Batman Telltale games? played a little bit of it and so the first season does a really good job speaking to what you just talked about about getting you really invested in the character and not Mm -hmm. want to see him turn into what he's going to turn into exactly and this story does the very same thing because once he does and he starts committing atrocities as two-face you just look at him and he is a truly tragic character in the story Mm -hmm. to the point that near the end when he's you know both both figuratively and literally has blood on his hands yeah he is just he's too far gone batman says you know we can help you we can get you help and harvey looks at him and says you're the ones who need help right like you don't see what i'm seeing Mm -hmm. and he gives himself up Mm -hmm. he legitimately gives himself up handcuffs you know puts his hands out to get handcuffed because he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish yeah um, and we find out, ultimately, that he wasn't the holiday killer. No. That, for the most part, it was Alberto Falcone, who mm-hmm. faked his death yeah. earlier in the story. And so, once that kind of comes together, you start to kind of see the pieces. And um, it's really interesting reading through that story, knowing the knowing the twist again. Because then you yes. start to pick up on certain things, like uh, him being killed, and then suddenly the coroner's dead for some reason. He's right. a civilian. What happened? It was because he faked his death and he didn't want the coroner to uh, to squeal about it. And uh, this point also brings in, and going back to something I said before on how what Hush does wrong, Halloween does right. And that Long Halloween's mystery aspect to its story is much better, or is much better than, than the one in, in Hush. At least to me. I feel like it's a, you can actually follow along with Long Halloween, and you can go back and read it, and it's still, you can find those little little details that might have missed from before, or right. see what they were foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. With Hush, it's it's a little bit harder to do that, right. and I feel like Hush, Hush's story isn't as concrete or as well put together as Long Halloween's is. Oh, it's definitely not concrete. They no. it they no. actually took the time to retcon it, yeah. retcon a certain part of it, you know, reintroducing Jason Todd and everything to yeah. it. Without any kind of issues with the actual story. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is really interesting and really uh, speaks to it as a story when it comes to the strength of its narrative. Right. 
Now for here, mm-hmm. we find out that the reason that he has this obsession with holidays is because he was born on Valentine's Day. Right. And the whole thing started off as this sick, twisted idea to up the uh, stock of his family over the um, the Moronis. Mm-hmm. We get the tragic element in that it's a son trying to impress his father yep. to just such a degree where he, that he has to go so over the, over the top. We've all been there. Oh, of we, course. We've all, you know, wanted to impress our fathers so much that we wage war on another family to uh, get some kind of recognition, killing people on every holiday. We've look, all been there. Look, we've all got our daddy issues, and just because you <laughs> express yours in your own individual way doesn't mean you get to judge me on mine. All right? <laughs> well, just just let me know when you start using uh, pacifiers as your silencers on your pistols, and then, then we'll have to have a conversation about your issues exactly but as we find out it is not done it is not over yet no uh, because once um, alberto is taken in once two-face has had his way mm-hmm. we find out he's taken away and his wife gilda is packing up the house to leave to go somewhere else we find out that there were not one there were two holiday killers Yes. And the second killer was a Dent, but not Harvey Dent. It was Gilda Dent, his mm-hmm. wife. Now, how do you feel about this twist? At first, I didn't like it. Okay. Because I felt like it was, again, like Hush out of place, and mm-hmm. that it was, wasn't was as well put together, and I couldn't think of a time where that could have been hinted at in an earlier part of the story I always believe that in some mysteries you should always give your readers the opportunity to figure it out themselves to have a through line to, exactly to have a through line and also it doesn't need to be right away mm-hmm. obviously but throughout the book at a certain point there should be especially towards the end there should be enough of a, of a picture and a puzzle right. that the reader could figure it out on his own absolutely and I felt like suddenly this very last twist ending and almost the very last page kind of threw everything out out the window. Uh-huh. But I haven't read Dark Victory, which I think, think, if I heard correctly, is almost like a spiritual sequel in some way to Long Halloween. It is. I, I would say it's pretty much the sequel to Long Halloween. Right. And so I don't know if that sets that up, up in any way. But the more I thought about it, the more I liked it because of what it does to Harvey. He suddenly becomes very much more of a victim yeah, um, than led in the beginning when you're first reading it. It's even more of a tragedy because you get to see that he was always all, he was almost always set up to lose. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's one of the one of the panels that really um, becomes even more clear mm-hmm. after the twist is kind of revealed is when Harvey is caught by Gilda with the holiday killer's pistol. This is yes. still at the time that it's like um, is he? Is he not? Mm-hmm. And you, she's like, you know, what? Are, you never used to bring evidence home. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you doing this? And he's like, you know, I, I'm the DA. I can bring evidence home whenever I want. And then he leaves the room abruptly. And this, the final panel of this scene is just Gilda standing in this empty room, going, how, how much, how much sway do you have? Mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. and basically you get this idea that in the context of of the scene it's like oh she's watching the spiraling down of her husband exactly but now in the context of the greater story she realizes he's getting closer to her mm-hmm. 
and finding out that she is the holiday killer. And so you see at the very end, she's throwing in the hat, throwing in the coat, throwing in the gun to this furnace. So literally no one is ever going to know that Gilda was the second holiday killer. It is all going to be pinned on Alberto, and no one within the context of the story is ever going to know that it was her. Exactly. Least of all, her tragically... um, just uh, tragically devastated husband who has now had his life ruined Mm -hmm. by the case that she was directly involved in. Right. I wish they, I wish they would bring this character back. Mm -hmm. Harvey Dent's wife. Yeah. It's Glinda. Uh, Gilda. Gilda. Glinda. Glinda's the good witch from the Wizard of Oz. She sure is. Gilda is not a good witch. No. No, that's right. (laughs) Which one's the good, never mind. Different topic for a different day. Um, I wish they would bring her back in the way they brought back um, how Scott Snyder brought back Jim Gordon Ernst, ah uh, yes James Gordon Jr. Yes, James yes. Gordon, Jr. love that character I think they, that this character could really do something really interesting in bringing her back absolutely and especially kind of seeing like what she's done in this time yeah because I feel like especially nowadays Two-Face is very underused as a villain absolutely no question and I, I feel like probably some writers feel like they're too constrained with him mm-hmm. in that they may feel like they need to do the duality aspect to it and that right. starts to feel hokey after too much. Yeah. But I think if you could do it in an interesting way, okay, especially bringing back like, this character from this story, mm-hmm. could be done in a modern or in telling very, very well. Did you ever read um, the All-Star Batman run by Scott Snyder? All-Star Batman with Scott Snyder. Um... No, I don't believe I did. It was right after he wrapped up his run on the New 52. Mm. And the first arc, um, written by him, art by John Romita Jr. Right. Uh, basically, it's Batman and Two Feet. Two Feet. Two Feet. Batman- <laughs> two <laughs> That's feet. a different villain. That's uh, all of us, truly. Just give it two a, Feet. Just get a few years. Um, <laughs> God. Um, Batman and Two-Face meets Mad Max Fury Road. That's right. And it is an incredible story that really, for my money, upped the stock of Two-Face's character. Uh-huh. If you haven't read it yet, definitely, definitely check it out. It is a wonderful book. The book eventually kind of loses its way, and uh, the end of the All-Star Batman run really just wasn't up to the same quality as that first arc. Mm-hmm. Now, that first arc is stellar. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that is the story of Batman the Long Halloween. Yes. So now that we've finished talking about the actual story, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Like, um, one thing I know that you really wanted to touch on were the villains yes. that were part of the story. So yes. tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the villains play such a very inter- inter- important role and are integrated well into this story. Right. Sometimes it feels like they'll just sort of pop in, but that's what's kind of nice about it, mm-hmm. it's, is that while there's this big issue and big mystery going on, there's suddenly, a, on the surface level, little new issues and new problems that, that are spilling out. It, it really highlights the single issue effect to mm-hmm. it, and that Absolutely. there's going to be somebody new in this one, right. and there's going to be someone uh, new in, the, in the, this number. Now, do you... Do you see that differently in the way that they do that with them popping up than in Hush? Well, with Hush, it feels like like 
feels like them popping up is more important than the overarching story. Oh, okay. When in Long Halloween, it feels like there's this overall overarching problem that they're constantly dealing with, and then this new stress suddenly comes in. Gotcha. Um, Okay. And while Hush feels more like, you know, the highlight of the week, it feels like this is part in Long Halloween that these villains are part of the world. And like you said before, they're creeping in and and so and suddenly towing in in a new way place to take over Gotham. Okay, so they're much more um, evenly integrated into the story. Yes, it feels okay. much more natural and feels much more flowing than in Long and in uh, Hush did. Got it. So speaking of these villains, mm-hmm. um, there's a bunch of them. There's a whole and they lot. They run the gamut from heavy hitters like the Joker, Two Face, Poison Ivy to lesser-known characters like Calendar Man. So yes. do you have any favorites that it, pop up in the story? I mean, I think Calendar Man is probably always going to be such an amazing note and mm-hmm. so well used in this story. Right, and completely changed from the original version of that character. 100%. Who is much closer to, like, a, uh, a killer moth or a condiment man. Yeah, a very, very goofy, very, very Silver Age of just the, the cape that was made out of cop calendar <laughs> or, or pages. Yes. Each one having a date and oh, number on it. I about that. And it was so funny of how... I love it when they take these characters that, at one point, were so goofy and so funny and were made in a comedic fashion right. and in the Silver Age, but then take that element to the, um that can be terrifying and right. can be very, very, very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And, and Calendar Man is a perfect example on what you can do to make these characters more... Or, or to, to bring more out of them, I should say. Yeah. And in different tones and fashions. And it comes back to how I think um, Jeff Loeb is so in- influenced by, by multiple medias. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we talked about uh, the Godfather aspect in the very beginning. Right. But then we have this Hannibal Lecter feel mm-hmm. that works so organically well with this character. Absolutely. And you see when the scene that they come to him is very much mm-hmm. layered like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Where he's behind a glass... Um, behind a glass screen and mm-hmm. he's unable to go anywhere but he just seems so in control even though he is locked up in, in a cell mm-hmm. and I think that's a really interesting character that I think could make a really good um, either film or oh, yeah. a limited series villain I agree I absolutely agree uh, another villain that I really love to see done in Tim Sale's way a of art and again is another world building and great way of making Gotham just this dark, dark, disturbing and creepy play place is the Solomon Grundy parts. Born on a Monday. <laughs> yes. Okay. Tell me, t- talk to me about Solomon Grundy. I've always been a, a big fan of Solomon Grundy because he just feels so weird. Right. It is this Hulk-like character in the DC universe <laughs> yeah. that is a cursed zombie that he brought back to life. Yeah. It's, what is it, Born on a Monday, Christened on a Tuesday, a... I just know he died on Sunday. Yeah, he, di- yes, he died on He's Sunday. Like married yeah. on... Wednesday? Wednesday? Thursday? Someone's going to look this yeah, up. Yeah, somebody they're... look it up. We, we, should, we probably we, should we, have, we, but... We, we should have looked this up beforehand. But, Re- um... Really go on to YouTube where someone's performing it, because it sounds and reads so disturbingly. Yeah, espe- so... especially if you actually you know rhyme it with Grundy yeah because it doesn't uh, I've read it 
at certain times, and it doesn't have the same Solomon Grundy mourn on a Monday. Yeah. <laughs> but like when you get when you actually like take the time to rhyme it, and especially you know you put some creepy music behind it, it could be terrifying. In um, can. Arkham Knight, Batman Arkham Knight, there right. was a uh, there was like a super creepy shrine built in his honor in mm. one of the uh, districts, and That's it right. is legitimately disturbing. Yeah. And so that character is, I think, utilized pretty well in this story. Mm -hmm. And the idea that in the sewer system of Gotham creeps this zombie that has no real thought pattern and just will say hey, his, the, the rhyme story over and over again. Yeah. And it, it, it's just so good. And it's done so well in this story. Alligators in the sewer of New York and got nothing. No, exactly. By a giant hulking exactly. white zombie. <laughs> Shouting a nursery rhyme at you—it makes you wish for a fight with Croc, with Killer Croc and Solomon Grundy. Sure. And then uh, another lesser known, but has actually uh, come back in more popular media is uh, uh, what what uh, Matt the Mad Hatter. Yes, Mad Hatter. I think the Mad Hatter is. Just a notch creepier above Joker at times. So, well, I mean, when you get into the uh, the uh, child molestation aspect of him, yeah, that yeah. is definitely something like Joker wouldn't even go near that. No, th th it's always kind of funny to think that just like Joker has morals, man. What are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you why are you taking this? Why are you? Ugh, ugh. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is the Mad Hatter can really be taken um, in different directions. I think speaking mm -hmm. of the Arkham games, yes, he was legitimately unsettling in that story oh. where there's one I don't remember if it was in Arkham City or if it was in Origins where you meet one of the Alice's that he's captured and she just is unable to you can tell that he we don't know it to the extent of how mm -hmm. of what exactly he did but he definitely abused her yes I believe in, that was Arkham Origins okay and he's like he can be very campy and hokey like in the animated series oh, absolutely but he can also be legitimately terrifying yeah in a very real world kind of way which and I think those are some of the worst comic villains yes when you look at them you're like I th I'm pretty sure this guy could exist in the real world that's always the thing is that when the bat I think Batman especially does that so well with his villains and then right the ones that seem like they can actually work, like, mm -hmm. uh, like the Mad Hatter, or in sometimes the Joker, or, or in Scarecrow, sometimes doesn't feel too unrealistic at right. times. Right, absolutely. That these could be, that these would be really, really scary and mm -hmm. be just unsettling to deal with. For but, sure. And, and and truly nightmarish. Right, and especially when you couple that with Tim Sale's art and yes. his ability to kind of stretch mm -hmm. out faces and really exaggerate different features on a character to really milk them for all the terrifying aspects that you can find in those characters. He, he does the same effect with uh, with Joker that he does with um, with the Mad Hatter and he's always smiling. Yeah. And but he yeah. but Mad Hatter looks dirtier or he looks much grimier. Yeah, yeah, much very very grimy. A, a guy that you would really be unsettled by if you saw him outside of a playground. Exactly. Exactly. Like, exactly. Hiding think, in the dark alley. Ugh. And I think that use of these characters, who can be very silly at times, really speaks to the depth of Batman's uh, rogues gallery. Uh, uh, there are certain characters. There's one character in particular. <laughs> Recently, in recent years, who Tom King has brought back to just 
the heights of as good as you can get if you're a Batman's rogue, and that is Kite Man. Kite Man. Kite Man. Kite Man is the single-handedly best Batman villain that has ever been created. You can fight me on this all day, and I Uh. will win because I can fly higher than you because I will be on a kite. (laughs) Kite Man is the one Batman villain who is missing from this story, and it is a goddamn shame. And this story would be elevated to the number one spot of any Batman list if Kite Man was involved. You know, seeing as how Firefly makes an appearance, you're not wrong. <laughs> That's right, he does. Seeing as how they they so, will oh. they start to scrape towards that bottom of the barrel with his villain choice. And, and that's what's We're gonna... not talking bottom of the barrel, man. Kite no, Man course, is A+. Plus. A, a plus. Kite, Kite Man is right up there with the Joker. A-lister. On his level. Serious he's gonna, A-lister. He's going to show up in the film sooner or later. Come on, Warner Brothers, we're waiting on you. I'm waiting for a Kite Man solo film. Also played by Joaquin Phoenix. What Joaquin if, Phoenix and kites. What if make it? The, no. What if it's got to be. It's got to be McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! Hell yeah! All right! All right! All right! I'll all make right. some kites. And this is what you're thinking about, Batman. You think you're so close to winning, but you just can't get high enough. <laughs> uh, uh, I need what it. If, what if in I, James Gunn's Suicide Squad we get a kite man? I, I will um, purchase the digital edition on Amazon Prime. I will buy the Blu-ray release. I will buy the 4K Ultra HD release, even though I can't watch that on anything in my home. And I will be there. At the world premiere for the movie, if you have Kite Man in the James Gunn Suicide Squad movie, especially if he is played by the one and only Matthew McConaughey, make it happen. Matthew McConaughey, I know you listen to this podcast. You need to play Kite Man right away. What are we, some sort of Suicide Squad? <laughs> you okay so okay so a little bit of uh context for this so the the original suicide squad film uh that was um 2016 a, a film uh i have mixed feelings on the film i'm sure as everybody does but i can't watch that film <laughs> i can't watch any Will Smith trailer now because of Andrew. Because we, when that first trailer came out, like a lot of people, I was really impressed by the trailer. I thought the use of um, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody was really well done. The color palette looked really interesting. And it looked like a very different take on the DC Universe. But after having one conversation with Andrew here about that trailer, I uh. could not watch it anymore because Andrew told me that he had a difficulty watching it was, that trailer because of one Will Smith. And tell me why. So, tell me exactly why. I don't get me wrong. There's Will Smith has done phenomenal work and I hope to see some of that again sometime soon. But every time I would see that trailer, every time that Will Smith would speak, it was almost as if he, he knew himself, he was in the trailer, and it seemed like every single time he spoke some sort of exposition in the dialogue for the trailer, or it would just be, for an example, what are we, some sort of suicide squad? Ha ha! <laughs> that- Rewatch one of the Suicide Squad trailers, go onto YouTube and watch one, and tell me that I'm wrong that there can't be a single moment and that where he 
where you cannot add a ha to it and it doesn't make sense. Because <laughs> he went, and that's the amazing thing about Will Smith, because no matter what movie he's in, he's always Will Smith. Every in movie. Aladdin, yep. he played Will Smith the genie. Mm-hmm. And what I love is that laugh. That signature, ha-ha, Will Smith laugh, is even in his music. It is. Like, you listen to his songs, and he has that laugh in there. Yep. And so, ever since he, <laughs> ever since he made that comment, I can never watch Will Smith in a trailer or in a film. Like, there, he has this movie coming out called Gemini Man. Oh, I'm so excited <laughs> and for it's it. Will it's Smith Ang Lee. on Will Smith with... Ang Lee directing. Oh, so good. And there's a moment in the trailer. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, but it's young <laughs> Will Smith versus old Will Smith. And young Will Smith, is ba- he basically says something along the lines of, um, he, knew every, he knew every move I made. How could he do that? Ha <laughs> And I just, I died every single time. And I, I'll, I'll be honest with you listeners right now, I haven't seen Aladdin yet. I haven't either. But I guarantee <laughs> somewhere in either Friend Like Me or in Prince Ali or in any other songs that he's directly um, participating in, there is going to be a ha-ha it works. in... In that song. I just think about it and it works so well. <laughs> just, you ain't never had a friend like me. Ha ha! And it's just... <laughs> Every time. Every time. Oh, oh man. It just cracks me up. I bet you didn't think we it was going to be a uh, character study on the life and career of Will Smith, but here we are. Now, getting back, getting to back on focus. track. Um, <laughs> Kite Man. Kite Man. No, <laughs> no, but getting back on track on uh, <laughs> Long Halloween, I could, I could easily... Feel free to let me know on Instagram or Twitter at GeekSplainPod, that's at GeekSplainPod, or through emails, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, do GeekSplain at gmail.com, if you would like for me to do an episode on Kite Man, because I could speak for hours on Kite Man, and I'll give you a little teaser, a little taste of what that episode would be like, because do you know the real name of Kite Man? Do you know Kite Man's real name? You know, I guess I'm not a true Batman fan. You're not. And... I do not know what Kite Man's identity actually is. Kite Man, his real name is Charlie Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Good grief. And that is just a taste of what gems you will find if you get a Kite Man episode. Did you... That might that might be our 100 episode spectacular. On our next pitch it. <laughs> On a, oh my god. <laughs> you heard it here first. I am going to be doing a pitch it kite man episode at some point in the future. Could you imagine, Bank on that. Could you imagine like what was what was, what was Larry David or like uh what was Larry David's show? Larry David's show. Um uh it was on HBO. Oh, um He's the guy who who helped create sitcom or sitcom um, Seinfeld. Oh, I know. Oh, what do you? I know what that is. I can't think of the title. Ah, it's gone. Uh, but just a very, very <laughs> almost like an Arrested Development on super villains. <laughs> I I would love a Parks and Rec style yes. kite man show 
where everything that happens, it suddenly cuts to a testimonial of him just being like, Kite Man. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... But getting back on track. Getting back on track. Oh, so good. Um, to <laughs> so good. Halloween. Um, so are there any other villains that you would like to talk about when it comes to there are, Long Halloween? There's so many great villains in this book that we could probably spend another hour and a half talking about all of them. As going all the way from the more classic comic book villains to the mobsters that we, we see. I mean, the, the use of the Falcones and the Moronis, again, so is, so, is so grounded and feels mm-hmm. so real at times. Right. It all is just feels like truly family business. I ab- I could not agree more. Now, since we've gone through the pros and cons, we've gone through or we've gone through the villains. Let's get mm-hmm. to the pros and cons. Let's yes. talk about stuff that we liked about this, stuff we didn't like about this. Mm-hmm. Starting off, let's go with the negatives. Are there any issues that you have with the story? I've, I've I think I talked about it before in that I feel like this mystery in Long Halloween and a hush works really well but it does feel like the twist at the end is a little bit out of place okay and it's not until you give it another read through or at least in my experience it wasn't until i gave it another read through that i like it more mm-hmm. when i first read it i didn't like the the ending i didn't like the twist ending right but then i i read it about three times to prepare or just to see everything that i might have missed the first couple of times i read it right and it wasn't until about the third time i would say that i really did kind of see how that kind of could be strung together mm-hmm. and how it could really work and again show this just descent of painful madness that Harvey goes through. Right. So I think think how the mystery works. But of course the the reveal with the sun, the Falcone sun, mm-hmm. is great. Really part, well done. I thought that could just work by of itself the, of the flashlight just yes. showing on him and revealing who he is. Yes. Super, super cool. And then, of course, the whole moment with his father where his dad is just like, oh, I can get you out. And his son goes, no, I don't want to. I yeah. want this to be my work. I yeah. want this to be... I want to be known for this. And he talks about how he's like, my birthday is on February 14th, but you wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. So, I would say if I had any cons about the story, I think I would have liked to see... Um, for me personally, I would have liked to see a bit more... Um, focus on Batman's relationship with those rogues because a lot of times mm-hmm. what we see is like him just straight up either going up against them right. or kind of showing up to the scene of like something really bad happening right like I would love because I don't think we ever really got a straight one-on-one conversation between Batman and the Joker no in story. It, it really felt like this was early on in Batman's yeah, career super early on and that he didn't have a repertoire with yeah. these, these with the with these villains it really felt more that he saw the is as just deranged criminals right and i think having that those kind of first meeting um interactions would have yes. really i think helped cement these characters in that story i agree because um, i think it's fairly well balanced having the mobsters versus the villains mm-hmm. and i think i would have liked to see more of the villains starting to take more of a spotlight when it comes to their interactions with Batman. Because right. normally, throughout the uh, story, Batman really only, when it comes to villains, interacts with um, the mobsters mm-hmm. in that way. Um, to kind of show that he's been dealing with this problem for longer than he has right. with, with the with his rogues gallery. Absolutely, and I think having, um, 
having that really would have enriched the story. Yes. And then I absolutely agree. The um, the twist with Gilda at the end really, I remember when I read it for the first time, it really left kind of a sour taste in my mouth. It, yeah. Because once again, if you don't know it's coming, mm-hmm. then it really kind of feels out of left field. It really does. And sometimes like stories that pull that off can really make it feel earned and feel worth it. I agree. If you followed the clues and you followed the trail... Um, you could have figured out by the time that it's revealed that it was Alberto. Exactly. But I think it's harder to deduce that mm-hmm. for uh, Gilda. I agree. It's all. I mean, it, it could show that that's how well the job she did. Maybe. In Absolutely. That she was. It was flawless in every way. Mm-hmm. She but, got away with it. Exactly. But I do enjoy knowing, like, especially when I'm reading a story or that's particularly a mystery mm. I look for those ways of, for the clues to try to figure it out yeah out. because it, it's just part of the fun of, of absolutely it all. and I and I also feel though why it could have been done was because we know what's gonna happen to Harvey and right. so there needs to be this little bit of extra mystery right? or this little bit of a bigger reveal so mm-hmm. we're not as disappointed or or at least there's more of a surprise in his story right. in a way so it doesn't feel as dissatisfying thing. Not even dissatisfying, but we already know that he's going to become Two-Face. Right. So suddenly having it so that his wife, who, again, is poorly never used again in the the history of Batman, I feel like this is the only real kind of way we get highlighted in in with her. Off the top of my head, this is really the only time that I can think of. Yeah, I I can't think of her her being utilized in that way. Or in like the Silver Age, or or probably this might have been her only appearance. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now that when they use it and make it so important, I hope that we can see it in future stories and different ways and different takes on this Two-Face character. For sure. Now, talking about this story is... I mean, we could talk about this all day. Right. But I think what we also need to look at in this story, as with a lot of classic, um, uh, iconic Batman stories, is how its legacy is perceived, how mm-hmm. it influenced the stories that came after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Nolan yes. very famously listed ha- Long Halloween as one of the big influences on The Dark Knight. Yes, famous. So how do you think that translates to um, to kind of his portrayal, and what do you think that... What do you think about him utilizing certain aspects and then leaving out cer- certain other aspects? Well, I think that... This story, especially, is very cinematic. I mean, obviously, sure. again, in Jeff Loeb's writing, he, he has this very cinematic quality. And, and Tim Sale does an incredible job in his framing. I agree. Completely agree. And I think that if you're going to draw from any single Batman comic, it should be this one. Because mm-hmm. it sets the world of Gotham in a very unique, not only noir way but very very gothic very very and it has a mystery to it right and which may not have been used in previous uh, incarnations like like Gotham very much felt like an actual city of like Chicago Mm -hmm. but I feel like that element could also could be used very well and that Gotham is this its own dark entity for sure and I think that also the relationship between Batman and, G- and Gordon and the law enforcement in general well, was a perfect way, as highlighted both very well in, for example, The Dark Knight and in the, this story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in The Dark Knight especially, how we get that 
um, same rooftop scene where it's right. Harvey Dent and Batman and Jim, Jim Gordon, Gordon all in one talking about what they're going to be doing next. Yeah, that's a that's a scene that happens throughout the comic uh, multiple times in the Dark Knight. Ultimately ripped from the comic really, onto yeah. the screen. No, exactly. Like with just Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent talking while Batman stands in the corner and listens. Yeah, and having the involvement of the Maroney crime family, yes. having all of that, and then watching um, Harvey's descent into Two Face, mm-hmm. um, and but then the fact that we have this overarching mobster family story, but then the other villains in the Dark Knight, the Joker, or comes through and starts to right. replant himself. In Gotham, in that Gotham. same way that he does in the story, exactly, where he just kind of blows in. It's you know one of those something wicked this way comes kind mm-hmm. of um, narratives where he just kind of appears in a whirlwind out of nowhere yes. and he starts wreaking havoc on the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really interesting that that has kind of carried through because this is also one of the more grounded Batman stories. It's not something that involves other heroes it's not something that feels like it could exist at times in the same world as like a superman which i think lent itself to why christopher nolan drew so much from it and i agree it doesn't feel like it's part of the dc universe it just feels like it's a batman story yeah and i think this set up a lot of the building blocks for how we view batman today Mm -hmm. when it comes to his demeanor his inner monologue how he approaches detective situations yes um i think a lot of his stuff uh influenced scott snyder's run when Mm -hmm. he was doing batman new 52 i I think Uh, a lot of his detective stuff when it came to the Court of Owls really spoke to the detective work that he did in this story. I completely agree. Scott Snyder's involvement, especially with um, with Court of Owls, fits so well into Gotham. Mm-hmm. And it fits so well organically that it's right. just like, oh, you have always been there. Yeah. And, and it feels very much like the... It feels very much like Solomon Grundy moving about in the sewer system. Something um, always creeping in the exactly. shadows. Exactly. That's the thing. There's always something in the dark in Gotham. Yeah. And you're right. right. Scott Snyder did that and brought that very well, very well in his take on the character. Now, talking about all of the stuff that it's influenced in the past, mm-hmm. we also have to talk about the stuff that it could be influencing in the future. Specifically... Yes. The Matt Reeves solo Batman film starring Robert Battenson. Robert Battenson has entered the field. Works so much better than Batflick. A new challenger awaits. And there's been a lot going yes. into the news of this. Yeah. Like a lot. Yeah. Um, I would also say... Mm, we'll talk about that at a separate point. But um, <laughs> when it comes to... This Batman film, I think there's more pressure to do this Batman film right than there has ever been on the character. It's debatable between this and Batman Begins because that was coming off of like the uh, Schumacher films. Yes. But I almost feel like because that came at a time where we didn't really know what to expect when it came to superhero films or Batman films specifically. The whole genre of superhero films was, wasn't even a genre yet. Right. And the whole landscape has changed since then. Exactly. And so now I feel like there's almost more pressure on this film to do right mm-hmm. because it has to pick up the pieces from uh, Snyder's Justice League. Oh, yeah. um, 
Batfleck and mm-hmm. all of the grand expectations that we as comic book fans and comic book film fans mm-hmm. now have put onto it. I agree. So Matt Reeves has already said in some interviews that uh, this film is going to focus a lot more on the detective aspect of this of Batman's character, which I think is fantastic. No, I think it's the best thing to do, especially when we live in a post Dark Knight world. Mm-hmm. The I think one of the few only routes you can do to really make a new Batman franchise work really well is to see what the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight franchise did really well and what it didn't do well. Absolutely. And I think like take and draw an inspiration from uh, Batman Long Halloween like, mm-hmm. as the Dark Knight did is a perfect like first step. Because Dark, the Dark Knight doesn't feel like a noir story. Right. And to highlight that fact from that comic and transition it to film, I think mm-hmm. is going to be, is the best move they can do. Well, at its core, the Dark Knight really is a crime thriller. Yeah. And, like, it has, um, of course, superhero and Batman trappings around it. But the right. centered idea is Batman possibly living in a world where the law could get better mm-hmm. looking at Harvey Dent as a successor looking at how he is able to work with the law yes. to get the things done that Batman didn't think could be done without being outside of the law. Exactly. In a, in a cinematic point, one of the movies that, that influenced uh, Christopher Nolan and Ford, The Dark Knight, was actually Heat. Yes! yes old classic, school! Old school, the classic uh, Al Pacino versus Robert De Niro oh, oh. The endless war. The endless war, or and so so many similar scenes, like the uh, Robert De Niro's character or an Al Pacino sitting at the table, all talking to each so other, good. or and then that translates so well in in the bat in Batman talking to the Joker mm-hmm. scene. The interrogation scene is still mm-hmm. iconic. It oh, absolutely, really is. Oh, it's still it. And I'm it's, and it's still I think a great scene. Since that film, we've really been looking for another Batman scene to really hit that high of a note. Yes. Because, I mean, people who haven't even seen The Dark Knight know about that interrogation scene. Exactly. It's the same thing with um, the Darth Vader twist. Yes. For Empire Strikes Back. Right. Spoilers for an over 30-year-old movie, folks. 40. Oh, Jesus. Um, (laughs) Darth Vader is Luke's father. Like, some people know that. I know. Some people know that without having seen a single Star Wars film. It's true. And what I really think that they need to zone in on is something that the Nolan films never really did. Mm-hmm. The Nolan films, for as much as they, you know, are, you know, raised up on a pedestal as so high, high as they can be, um, they didn't really feature the detective aspect of Batman. No, I I always felt that Chris Nolan's Batman movies was his take on James Bond. Interesting. Okay, tell me more. Well, when you really break it down... Those movies are really great James Bond movies. Batman Begins is uh, probably the, one of the best origins of the character we're going to see. Agreed. But Super underrated in that trilogy. You have, uh, for almost character-wise, you have, obviously, James Bond and Batman are very, very similar. Or mm-hmm. they, they go both wear suits. They both wear suits. They go on individual <laughs> missions. They got nice fancy cars. They sleep a, around a lot. They sleep around, yeah, they sleep around a lot. <laughs> a plethora of gadgets that's provided to them by an outside sore. Whereas you have Q, but you also have, have Fox with Batman. You have his M, who would be sending him on his missions in his ear, ear that being M and Alfred together. Okay. But also with a little bit of James 
uh, but also a little bit of Gordon mixed in there. Mm -hmm. Maybe Alfred could be more like the honeypot. Uh, is that is that it? No. Alfred Honeypot. Yeah, that's that might not be the character's name. I can't remember, but someone to talk to about everything. And then, obviously, what's great though is is that Batman's villains are much more interesting, or at least can sometimes be more interesting than. Uh, than James Bond and villains. See, but that's really interesting now that you're talking about that. I never looked at, the, at it that way. That's really interesting. Yeah. But if you look at a film like some of the recent uh, Bond films, Skyfall. Yes. Perfect example. Which... Javier Bardem mm -hmm. could easily... His character there could easily be transitioned into a Batman villain. Absolutely. And, that, and it's funny because... Um, the people who made that movie were influenced and took a lot of measures from the Dark Knight specifically yeah, into their, mo yeah, into their the movie. Yeah. We take a look at the scene between Javier Bardem, M's character, and M, M in that glass prison. Right. And yep. It's so similar to Batman and the Joker scene. Mm -hmm. and, and it's too old, old. Well, not even old, but, but that relationship between the two is so oh, similar or in that I just want to get you. When he takes his teeth yes. out, like, ah, yeah, 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 still super, super good on the prosthetics work. Oh, that. yeah, just as disturbing. But that's how I've always seen Chris Nolan's uh, Batman movies, is that that's so interesting. they make really great, they're probably the best, my favorite take on James Bond, that's without so being cool. about James Bond. Well, and it's so interesting, because, like, I've always looked at them, because a lot of people say, like, this is the best version of Batman there ever is. And it's like, if you want to have that opinion, that is a totally valid wrong opinion. Yeah. But <laughs> wrong. I've always kind of looked at that as, like, they were Bruce Wayne films. Yes. It was never really about Batman as a character. I agree. It was really about Bruce Wayne finding purpose in his life. I agree. And when you put it in the context of its him being this James Bond character of treating Bruce Wayne as, you know, a James Bond story. Right. I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of um, recontextualizes a lot of the stuff that happens in those films. I, and I agree. I think there's just so many parallels to it all that it's, for at least me, hard not to see. And I think now that we are, again, in this post-Dark Knight, world right where we now have to look at what makes this character great mm -hmm. and sharing a similar origin and then seeing what that story did so well to highlight for the character i think is really going to shine well and, and i have full faith in matt reeves movies he's and they've his been, take on they've been great it's been super good they've so been far super super yeah. good all all of his work on the planet the apes new franchise was phenomenal mm -hmm. all, and when i heard that he was going to get his own story and his own take and he wasn't going to be, be restricted to the to the DCEU. Mm -hmm. I always got super excited for it. And I'm right. and I think Robert Pattinson in this noir setting yes, is going to really to shine. Talk to me about Pattinson and how you feel about him. I'm as somebody who since high school through college got called Twilight for the longest time, <laughs> I feel this is this is the universe doing me a favor and just like now he's Batman just like, well, that's, for, that's all I needed. For those of you who are unfamiliar, and because this is an audio uh, format, uh, Andrew has always been the pretty one <laughs> when it comes to our friend, our friend circle. Ah, oh, don't you say um, that. <laughs> we, uh, but I think it's I think it's interesting when it comes to Rob, Robert Pattinson as, as an actor. And we I talked agree. about this off mic a little bit ago. I agree. Where I think that if you're going to take the idea of 
Robert Pattinson not being what we call a physical specimen. No. Um, having no. him be influenced and the story that he's being, you know, dropped into mm-hmm. be framed by the idea of Batman being the world's greatest detective works really well to his strengths I agree. as an actor. Because he can't, you know, be the physically imposing force that Batfleck was. He just well, the size that you had on him, especially no. in Batman v Superman. Yeah, yeah, like that, just gigantic Frank Miller esque Batman. No, like Ben that, Affleck being six foot four, and yeah. Pattinson's know. never going to be that huge. No, but you were actually you were showing me like some recent pictures of him yes. getting ready to. I mean, like working out with a personal trainer and mm-hmm. getting ready to film, and he's looking built. He is. He's looking, he's looking fit. I like to look at his at where he's at right now, and I think the sort of Batman we're going to get is a very lean, almost MMA fighter or like mm-hmm. build, like a which, GSP. Yeah, it's very much GSP like. I feel like I think they're both of similar heights or even uh, more middleweight weight mm-hmm. in MMA in terms. In that 185 pounds, that while yeah. it looks very, it's going to look very every man. Uh, ben Affleck was a great great physical imposing thing Batman in that he was taller than Superman <laughs> and at times looked down to talk to Superman and that's and why I think they gave him the short ears on exactly the cow. I because it would look ridiculous if he had long Halloween no I agree bad no, ears just, just like out to two feet and he's, on top of he's his head. like eight feet tall exactly. with accounting for the ears <laughs> um, uh, but yeah I absolutely agree I think um, having a leaner Batman is mm-hmm. going to really differentiate him him from the other Batmans who came before him. And I think it's going to root back into this sort of creature of the night, smartest man in the room kind of feel Mm -hmm. that's going to be highlighted with Robert Pattinson. And in recent years, Robert Pattinson has really proven himself as an actor. He's really been reinventing himself after his teen heartthrob phase. I I, 100% agree. And there's this new movie, I can't unfortunately remember what it's called, but it has William Dafoe in it and it looks, it's all in black and white and it looks really, really interesting. Oh, okay. I, I don't it, think I've heard of that. I, it, I will, I'll show you who some link to it that I was reading about. But it almost looks very Lovecraftian right. in, in this uh, sea horror-like effect. That's cool. But the director has said there's going to be a fantasy element to it. So oh, I'm, interesting. I'm very, very excited to see what happens from it. And he looks really good in it. They well, both really look great in, 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 in it together. Right. So, well, and speaking of Christopher Nolan earlier... Um, Pattinson's actually starring in his next big blockbuster mm-hmm. film. That's correct. It's called Tenet. Mm-hmm. T-E-N-E-T. Um, I haven't seen any trailers for it. Apparently they dropped in front of some movie this past week. Oh, really? They're all finished yes. with it? Oh. I, 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 don't know, I don't know if they're finished with it, but oh, like okay. a teaser oh, came I see. out. Oh, I see. Um, and he is... Pattinson's starring in this film before... He jumps into Batman, so I think that's really interesting in seeing kind of the parallels and how small of a world Hollywood can be sometimes. But I don't know. I I'm really interested to see Pattinson in a noir film, yes. in a detective noir film. I agree. Uh, and Matt Reeves has specifically said that his film is going to draw from stories like Long Halloween, like Dark Victory, like certain films or certain stories that really highlight Batman's intellect and mm-hmm. his detective capabilities. And I'm hoping we get that stylized effect that we got with these comics that are going to translate to the movie. I just... Absolutely right. I hope that we really look at Bat or uh, Battenson and he looks like a Tim Sale drawing. That's I would yeah. love that. <laughs> Everyone just looks like live action Tim Sale draw- drawings. That would be an incredible artistic really, choice. What it really would, though, when you think about it, is that if you wanted to do a 
very dark, very stylized take on Batman, Pattinson's the one to go for. True, he's he's willing to get weird. That's the thing is that I feel like the other choices that were rumored to be you know auditioning against Pattinson or to are also up for the role were a little Nicholas, bit more Nicholas Holt. Yeah, that that's so interesting to me. Yeah, that's very. It, it's almost kind of that Jake Gyllenhaal effect. It's a little bit more mainstream. It's yeah. a little bit a little bit closer to the comics, but because Pattinson's got darker eyes and dark brown hair, dark well, Pattinson. Yeah, yeah, he's got or the Nick Holt ha, has. You know, those bright blue eyes True. and square jawline. Um, it would have been very, very traditional. Old. But I think for what they're going for, or at least what I can only imagine with what they're rumored to be drawing from, and mm-hmm. just from just the very pick of Pattinson itself, right. it feels like this, is, this could be way different from what we've seen before. Yeah, I'm looking forward to stuff like, you know, tonally making it something similar to like a seven. Yes. Or like a... Um, a memento, like yes. those kind of like dark mystery detective stories. Now, the big question I gotta ask when it comes to Robert Pattinson: mm. long or short ear, Cal? Because we can go with the short ears that Batfleck had, or we can go with two foot tall long ears, like, like in he, Long Halloween. Right, right, right. I feel like, of course, somewhere in the middle. If we had to go from a movie standpoint, I feel that I think uh, Christian Bale's Batman, like those years, are probably in a good area. Right in the middle. Right I, in the right that. in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I feel yeah, yeah, like yeah. maybe if I I just feel that once you get too high up, it starts looking too cosplay like and not very tactical. Fair. No, and no disrespect. No to disrespect any to cosplayers, cosplayers who, who want really... to make really high. Hi, ears. You look fantastic. You, you always look do. Very so true to the character, but I think for getting that general audience, mm-hmm. it would be sort of better to fit that sort of in the middle. Well, I gotcha. thought that Affleck's ears were too small. Really? I, yeah, I, felt, I liked those a lot. I felt that times they kind of looked like little nubs on on his on his head <laughs> instead of ears. Bat nubs. Exactly. Like almost like little nipples on the top Don't. of his bat brain. All right. All we're right. not going to be talking about bat nipples here on this podcast. We're moving on. Not my Christian Bale household. (laughs) But I feel, yeah, somewhere in the middle between... Because I think if they did let almost like that Arkham City-like effect... Okay, so you you think those are a good length? The Arkham Arkham City, Arkham Asylum... I mean, for if you can make that look good... I mean, especially Arkham Asylum, Arkham City, like they were super high up, but then it was... um, what was it? Arca, Arkham Knight, I felt, mm-hmm. had a good kind of balance. I really enjoyed that metal little suit. It was very Iron Man-esque, but it still looked Batman-like. Like it had a little bit of that Christian Bale little middle ears, but also still longer from the other games. See, for me, when it comes to like that kind of cow ear length, I think with all the problems that the game itself had, Arkham Origins mm. had a fantastic like early bat suit, and I think the ears were right around just perfect. That uh, Arkham Origins is my favorite bat suit. Really? Yes, I will put that on right now, and you can test for the test of time. That is always going to be my favorite Batman suit. That that bat suit is incredibly tactical. It, and that's the way that I like it, though, is that it looks very, very tactical, but it can still work in that classic comic book look feel to it. Mm-hmm. It's all gray, but it has a little bit of black hidden in, in, in there. It looks like it's looks like it's layered on top but can still you can move around in it it and feel well armored so then for pattinson's batman Mm -hmm. would you see a more armored aspect or would you see 
could you see them going a completely different route from any of the other movies before it and it be more of a traditional kind of cloth Kevlar style costume? That's really what I think or what I would probably put what I would make the bet on is that it's going to be almost very um, Netflix Daredevil like and that there's okay. bits of not plastic but plastique or, right. or Kevlar or that shines a little bit more armored-esque mm-hmm. but still flows well into that cloth like feel. Right. I because I, I, I think one of the big uh, complaints for the Nolan films mm-hmm. was that essentially for Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, uh, a lot of people were, what they were calling it, uh, it was like bat motocross armor. Yes, I, and I agree. Like I, It at times looked like it could have worked, mm-hmm. but I feel like he couldn't flow with it. I feel like we couldn't get very, especially living in a post-John Wick world, right where our action scenes really do kind of have to be very well choreographed and very very right. seamless and, and very big absolutely i'm hoping that we can get moments like that to show that this batman especially is a very very tactically thinking martial artist mm-hmm. and that maybe he's not the strongest or or the fastest but he's always right. going to be able to outsmart you in your movement yeah. and be able to slip into a move that you may not be uh, anticipating yet. Well, and that's something that I think worked really well with The Long Halloween was being able to... Because he doesn't have, you know, as many fight sequences as you would normally see in a Batman story. No. But the ones that he does have, he's always coming to the situation from a position of fighting smarter, not harder. Exactly. His use of gadgets is something that I think really should be picked up on, Mm -hmm. um, along with his gadgets being used for his detective work. I agree. So, I think think we've pretty much hit anything. If there is a... If there's a listener Mm -hmm. um, who either hasn't read Long Halloween yet or read it and really enjoyed it. Is there a story that you could recommend, a recommended reading for something to read after that? Well, obviously going to the other Jeff Loeb and um, Tim Sale work, work, uh, Dark Victory, I think they've written a few, or they created a few Batman and comics. Mm -hmm. Obviously going to that, if you want to branch outside the DC Universe, definitely pick up up any of uh, say Hulk Gray or Spider Man Blue, who uh, Dareda or Daredevil Yellow, yeah. or just for diff- just for different flavors and see what these two do well all together. You don't need to pick up Captain America White. No, it's not great. Oh, that's disappointing. It is. That's very especially disappointing. for me. I know, man. But um, yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. Yes, I think that's fan. Those are fantastic recommendations for sure. I I would also. Um, I would also add on to that. I would say, um, I mean, Dark Victor, of course. Yes. The uh, Batman Court of Owls. Yeah, would be uh, fantastic. I was gonna say, like, if you love um, this book, pick up any of Scott Snyder's take on Batman. For sure. I mean, I personally didn't like what he did with uh, Mister Freeze, but everything else I really did enjoy. Really. I. So my problem with that is that what always was nice about Mister Freeze was mm-hmm. this. You just felt bad for him. Right. And that he was the, the guy at the wrong place, the wrong time, and at every single turn, life just kept throwing a monkey wrench in some way, mm. way. And he eventually got to this point of just desperation. Okay. Which is what they tried to shine in the animated series. They tried to make him yeah, different they created from, from before. that backstory for him. No, exactly. But when you take that backstory away, you go backwards. Right. And that now he's just suddenly this... Uh, spoilers for Scott Snyder's take on Mr. Freeze, by the way. <laughs> you suddenly go back 
say that very beginning in that he's just another crazy villain right. just like so many other Batman villains that's a good point point. and so yeah. I feel like this element of character is taken away again Scott Snyder much better writer than me he will always <laughs> be one of the best comic book writers that we have right now mm-hmm. uh, fight me on that I dare you but definitely Scott Snyder's work with Court of Owls and then the uh, death of the family like, is still one of my favorite Joker yes. stories stuff with the Joker is fantastic Really, all of his work when it comes to the Joker, Death of the Family, Endgame, I think was really, really good. I even personally really liked the um, the Batman uh, Jim Gordon run. Yeah. Super heavy. Yeah, yeah. Very underrated run. I still very, very wish different. that we had gotten more time with that. Mm, very, very unique take. A very, very refreshing take after so long with Bruce and Batman being right. Batman to then really say, what if... Jim Gordon was Batman. Yeah. What if? What would that look like? Because we've had so many other people right. be Batman, and Scott Snyder took on um, Batman when he was Dick Grayson. Yep. And so he has this really great way of using other characters to fill that role. Speaking of which, wonderful segue. <laughs> I my final recommendation is a comic that I always recommend when it comes around this time. You're used to me recommending it, but when it comes to Batman, I think this is still one of the greatest. Batman stories ever. Batman Black Mirror yes. by Scott Snyder with yes. art by Jock is also an incredible detective story. Get the collected edition yes. because it comes with all of the backups that he did mm-hmm. in detective comics with uh, art by um, uh, f- uh, why am I forgetting his name? It's Frank Villa. That's um, it. I couldn't remember it either. It's a fantastic story talking about uh, James Gordon Jr. Mm-hmm. coming back into Jim Gordon's life. Andrew was talking about earlier about bringing that character back after his um, very first and up until that point only appearance in Batman Year One. As a baby. Um, yeah. I would also recommend Batman Year One. Oh, absolutely. If you are looking for that kind of grounded... Um, mob style mob centric story mm-hmm. uh, it is more of a Jim Gordon story than a Batman story I will say yes but absolutely. I definitely think if you want to find something that has the same kind of flavor as Long Halloween it's definitely one to pick up in my personal headcanon right up until you know the new 52 and all that stuff happened mm-hmm. it always went for me um, in his chronological timeline my headcanon was uh, year one Long Halloween Dark Victory, and then everything else. I would agree with that. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. And they're and they're written by different uh, authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Miller, of course, wrote Year One. Uh, Jeff Loeb doing uh, Long Halloween and Dark Victory. But I think if you take those three stories as a Year One, Year Two, Year Three kind of thing, I think it fits really well. It rolls through because they use certain characters that carry across, like the Falcones, like mm-hmm. the Maronis. And we were talking about it earlier how, especially uh, Long Halloween, feels very much like a newer Batman. Yes. It feels like he hasn't, not so much that he hasn't been doing the work for the longest time, but it feels like all of this is very fresh to him. Mm-hmm. We don't get to see that decorum that he's eventually going to have with the, his rogues gallery yet. And he's much more focused on the mobsters and solving like, this giant crime family problem that's in Absolutely. Gotham. Absolutely. So, and that is that is going to do it for yeah. our second edition of Geek Explain Spotlight on the <laughs> Long Halloween. Um, Want to say real quick thank you to Andrew for joining us for this. Thank you for having me. I uh, hope to be back soon so we yeah. can do this again. I hope you it's, listeners 
uh, liked me coming on. It, it's been it's been a long time coming for sure. Yes, we've uh, talked Andrew, about this a good couple of times. Yeah, Andrew was there from the very beginning, uh, listening in, kind of pitching ideas for different episodes. So you can thank a, me for comics countdown. Oh, shut your mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was, it was a genuine pleasure to finally get you on the podcast. Yes. Thank you for joining. Um, for those of you who don't know, Andrew is visiting from out of state. Yes. Back in the uh, the old stomping grounds in Arizona. And he <laughs> came out for a week to L.A. to experience the splendor of Los Angeles. And we finally got everything together to put this episode together. So this has been in the works for a little while. And I am mm-hmm. really glad that we were able to sit down and talk. I've been, this was one of the highlights of my week that I was so, so eager to do and so excited for. So let us know what you thought of long Halloween. Have you read it? Are you going to read it now? If you haven't read it and you just went through all this with the spoilers, um, I don't know what to say to you. Of but tell I, us what you think. Yeah, tell us what you think. Tell us what you think of the story. Um, feel free online to, co- you know, request other yes. uh, other stories that you want to see in our Geeksplain Spotlight. We're going to be doing this every single month. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be spotlighting a different book every single month. Last uh, month, the inaugural edition was for spider-man blue yes this month is long halloween who knows we might stay on the jeff Loeb and tim sale train going into september um but yeah work yeah, yeah. It, they are fantastic definitely check out all of their work this sure. was the first time that andrew has been on the podcast but it will not be the last no. and i am super excited to talk about anything and everything that comes our way And of course, that wonderfully catchy tune that you all voted on, never forget, means that it is now time for the weekly review. This, of course, is the segment of our podcast where we review something weekly. And right now, we are working on The Boys. This is the Amazon Prime original series. adapting the comic series of the same name and we are reviewing episode two titled cherry now this episode is uh is interesting i think it's less action-packed i would say than the first episode but um there's a lot of character work here which i really really found interesting uh this picks up right where we left off with um billy butcher and huey grabbing the lifeless body of Translucent and stuffing him into Billy Butcher's car. Of course, they find out pretty quickly after that that he is, in fact, alive, which makes Billy basically have to tell Huey we have to kill him because he's seen our faces. So they take him to the one man who can potentially solve their problem, that being Frenchie. Really, really dug Frenchie in this episode. I liked him a lot. He seems interesting. There's a lot of stuff that I think at least from what I remember from the comics, 
he was a pretty integral player in this story, so I'm looking forward to see what he brings to the table here. Um, Translucent, if I remember correctly, is a show-exclusive character. He wasn't in the comics, so I was really interested to see how he was going to be used in this show, and um, we got our answer. Uh, more on that in a bit, but I wanted to talk about uh, some of the other stuff that happened during the episode just before we get there. Uh, we do find out that Homelander uh, lasering the plane of the mayor basically was not ordered by Stillwell, like I originally thought it was. Um, he did it all of his own accord, and Stillwell is really kind of disturbed by this. Homelander seems like he really wants to kind of step up and start making more decisions while Stillwell kind of wants to keep him at a, uh, I guess, at like a reasonable arm's length away from the decision making. And you can tell that that's something that bothers him. Uh, we also got a lot more development with Annie. Uh, where she is kind of forced into a mission with the Deep, which ends up just kind of being a, uh, a media stunt. And then following that, she gets her secret identity exposed because she stops what looks to be a date rape situation in an alleyway and someone was recording and she was in her uh, street clothes. So she's recognized, she's kind of outed, and she has to deal with kind of the media storm that is brewing right around that. Uh, we also got a little bit of a peek into how Stillwell does business when she blackmails a senator uh, into putting forth a bill to get supers into the military, which I think just opens up a whole other can of worms. But the way that she does this is she has um, this shapeshifter uh, called Doppelganger, who basically um, turns into this young girl, has sex with the senator, and during which she blindfolds him and then turns into what I'm assuming is his, um, his original form, which is a uh, balding, overweight man, and takes pictures of that, trying to blackmail the senator, who I'm assuming is a Deep South or uh, Bible Belt senator, into supporting the bill. So you can see that she's playing uh, Dirty Pool here, and I am really interested to see where that goes with the whole um, supers in the military, because I feel like, especially nowadays, where we're talking about just in normal life, uh, how much uh, the military is part of our every day-to-day -day lives, whether it's about um, assault weapons or uh, putting money into uh, the war. It's just, there, there's a lot of uh, touchy subjects when it comes to that stuff, and I'm interested to see how they uh, cover those topics in the spectrum of having uh, superpowered people in that realm. Really, really uh, kind of disturbing to see the lengths that uh, Stillwell will go, but I guess she is running a multi-billion dollar corporation and has the premier superhero team under her employ, so she kind of has the power and the means to do whatever she wants. Uh, she's a really interesting character. I believe she's gender-bent from the original comics. If I remember correctly, Stillwell was a guy in the... Uh, 
in the original comics, so it's interesting seeing how different they are from each other, from adaptation to adaptation. But I, um, I'm, she's definitely one to keep an eye on. Uh, back with Billy Butcher, Translucent, Frenchie, and Huey, uh, they're trying to figure out how to kill him, and how to kill Translucent rather. And uh, it's not easy because Translucent's. Uh, basically invincible. His body is made of this, uh, or his skin rather, is made of this carbon fiber that is basically impenetrable. However, it is highly, um, uh, what is it, highly conductive to electricity, which is how they're able to incapacitate him in the last episode, and so they're keeping him in this electrified cage. Um, I think it's really interesting that they kind of incorporated science into this into a world that's kind of um really not about the science though i'm sure that that's gonna change just because it is a modern day superhero story but i really uh i liked the moments that translucent got in this episode even though we're probably we're not, not gonna see him again because um him and Huey had a really interesting conversation where Huey is kind of second-guessing his uh, course of action with uh, Butcher and Frenchie, and Translucent is trying to tell him, you know, basically we've seen this, uh, we've seen this scene in so many superhero stories where the hero is caged and he convinces the grunt to let him go, the uh, the undervalued henchman to uh, release him, and this was kind of you know, a play on that, but it's uh, much more vicious because Translucent is, of course, a raging asshole. So I really liked kind of how they turned that on its head and essentially made it the villains in the cage where the hero is unsure what to do. But Frenchie finally gets an idea, so he knocks out Translucent and then shoves C4 up his butt. So he figures out that the only way to kill him is from the inside out because his insides aren't aren't covered in the uh, carbon material that his skin is. So I thought that was a really ingenious way to kind of take care of the situation. But they're trying to get info from him and Translucent now under the threat of death, his calm, cocky demeanor kind of drops and he's basically just spouting off all kinds of information, including that A-Train was not stopping a robbery when he ran through Robin like he said he was on the news. He was, in fact, running from a place owned by the uh, superhero Popclaw. If I remember in the comics, Popclaw was a member of Teenage Kicks. Um, I don't know if they're going to introduce Teenage Kicks or not. I kind of hope so, because it's a really depraved and awful version of the Teen Titans. So... We'll see, but uh, it is revealed that A-Train was running from Popclaw's place, and that whatever he was carrying is... Because um, we saw when he was running, he had the satchel that he isn't seen with at any other point in the rest of the episode. So I'm really interested to see what Popclaw's giving him, and uh, what he is basically uh, running from. So... At the end of this, Homelander kind of takes matters into his own hands. Uh, there's also, speaking of A-Train, there's a really funny scene where A-Train is visiting um, this cancer patient, this child cancer patient. And we see this all the time uh, with Make-A-Wish and stuff like that, so I'm assuming that this was kind of part of that. But when he visits the kid, the kid's like, I wanted to see Translucent. It was my only wish. And A-Train is like trying to salvage the situation, but it's so bad because he just doesn't know what to say. 
Um, he says at one point, he's like, if you get better, I'll teach you to run as fast as me. And the kid goes, so you'll teach me to outrun cancer? And he just, like, looks at the camera because he doesn't know what to do. And it's just so funny and so awful. It's black humor and it's, and I don't mean black because I trains black, but it's, like, it's dark humor um, just at its most amazingly cringy form so really enjoyed that but homelander decides to take translucent's disappearance um into his own hands and we see him show up where they're keeping translucent uh frenchie and uh billy have to kind of distract him frenchie blows up his apartment building to distract homelander and send him away while butcher seems to be really like the way that he was looking at homelander when he was hiding from him is just like there is definite history there, and if you did read the comics, you know that there is history there, so I'm interested to see where they um, finally cover that in the show. But then, while all this is going down, Translucent finds a way to escape his cage, and Huey is left with the detonator of the C4 that's been stuffed inside Translucent's body, and he kind of convinces Huey that he'll be the guy who saved Translucent if he lets him go. And Translucent kind of seems to get to Huey, and he goes to leave, but Huey takes a second thought, clicks the button, and we just see just blood just explode, because at the time that he exploded, he was, of course, invisible, and so you just see blood just all over the room. And that's pretty much where the episode ends. So um, the seven are now down to the six, and Annie's dealing with uh, media backlash. Um, Huey now has to grapple with the idea that he just killed someone. And um, the plot thickens as Homelander is trying to gain more power in his world. So overall, really like the episode. It was a little bit slower than the first episode, but a lot of good character development here. So that is going to do it for the weekly review for this week. Tune in next week for episode three. We're doing all eight episodes of the season, and it was recently revealed that they're already filming season two. They're already filming it. So um, just from what I've seen from these first two episodes, uh, that's absolutely warranted. The show is really, really good. Uh, really held up, I think, by um, the three leads that being uh carl urban as billy butcher um anthony Starr as homelander and oh no i don't remember his name but huey so uh billy butcher uh homelander and huey are really kind of the core here um i would say annie too uh she's going through some really uh, harsh realities of being a famous superhero the like the a-lister so she's really kind of learning how to navigate all that and it will be interesting to see how she grows into this role of being part of the seven so um yeah next week episode three but for now let's jump into this week's comics countdown Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely be taking a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. But before we get into this week, we gotta take a little bit of a look to last week as we cover the Geek explained pick of the week of last week and 
the pick of the week for last week was tough. There were um, a few, actually, really good issues that came out last week, but ultimately I chose Event Leviathan, number three. Uh, that's right. For the first time, a Jonathan Hickman uh, X-Men book isn't the pick of the week of last week, and it is in fact a Bendis book. A Bendis DC book is our pick of the week of last week. Um, but honestly, it is so, 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 so good. Um, I really wasn't excited for this event when it came up, but I've been really enjoying it after I caught up on the issues. Um, the art is just stellar. Alex Maleev is a madman with his watercolors. It looks like at certain points that I know that all the artists draw these comics, but his art looks hand drawn and hand painted. And it kind of reminds me of Asad Ribic or Ribic, uh, who is working with Jason Aaron on King Thor this fall and has worked with him on his Thor run in the past, but it's just so good. It's really intriguing. I'm actually really interested in the uh, the whole secret identity of Leviathan. I really want to know who this is. Um, and then the Jason Todd stuff. The last issue kind of left off with Jason Todd being confronted by everybody, and you see that he's kind of a badass. Like, we give uh, Jason Todd a lot of uh, crap for a lot of things, and rightfully so, but the way that he's able to not just neutralize everyone coming after him, but is able to do so with little to no effort really kind of upped the stock of Jason Todd for me in the DC universe, so I really appreciated it. Um, and it, and of course it did further the mystery of who Leviathan is and the cliffhanger at the end with uh, Superman showing up to Amanda Waller, who has kind of been missing in action, uh, was a really cool cliffhanger, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in issue four. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six books for you once again, and we are starting it off with Nightwing number 63, uh, written by Dan Jurgens with art by Travis Moore. Um, this book is starting to head into the year of the villain with its tie-ins. Um, let's jump into the synopsis and we'll talk about the book a little bit. While the Nightwings recover from their last battle against the fiendish Burnback, Rick reflects on the small portion of his past that he remembers. Life in the circus as the youngest member of the Flying Graysons, in hopes of finding any clues as to what kind of man his parents hoped he'd become. Perhaps a certain Talon has the answers he seeks. So as you can tell from there, the Court of Owls and the Talons specifically are reintroducing themselves into the Nightwing book. Um, I'm interested to see what they do with this. The whole idea behind um, the Year of the Villain when it comes to tying into the Nightwing book is that the court wants Dick Grayson. Right now they have Rick Grayson, and Lex Luthor is kind of promising them Rick Grayson. So this is going to feed into that. Um, the Burnback arc I wasn't a big fan of, so I'm hoping that since this is bringing back a, uh, a story element that I enjoy, that being the Court of Owls, that this uh, arc will be a little bit more engaging. 
Next up, we have Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 2 of 12, written by Matt Fraction with art by Steve Lieber. Holy crap, was this such a fun read. First issue of this was so fun. Um, it took a little bit for me. There was a lot of exposition in the first couple issues, but once you got past that, it was such a fun thrill ride, and I cannot wait to pick up this next issue. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Only Jimmy Olsen knows what Superman's secret superpowers truly are. And now, those mysteries will finally be shared with you. And only you. Don't tell anyone. And Jimmy won't have any of his pal's super abilities to help him get out of his latest jam as he hits the dark and dirty streets of Gotham City. So yeah, the last issue, spoilers for the last issue, um, Jimmy Olsen seemingly uh, faked his own death and then kind of showed up in Gotham City. He's working a case or a story in Gotham City. And uh, it's really interesting to see uh, Jimmy Olsen, kind of the bright, fun uh, Jimmy Olsen, especially in the, uh, in the capable hands of Steve Lieber's art, feeling very old school, not unlike a Doc Shaner or a Chris Somney. Um, it's just going to be so good seeing him kind of mixed up in the dark gritty aspects of Gotham City. So definitely pick this one up for sure. Next up we have History of the Marvel Universe, number two of six, written by Mark Wade with art by Javier Rodriguez. Uh, first issue, really, really good, but I am looking forward to this next issue. This is going to be covering uh, the birth of Captain America, the first half of the 20th century, and um, lots of stuff that I think more modern and mainstream Marvel fans are going to be more familiar with. So let's jump into the synopsis here. From the dawn of the 20th century to the first meeting of Mr. Fantastic and Doctor Doom, learn the secrets of Marvel's history. Who was John Steele? Which western gunslinger helped inspire the first heroic age? All this and more revealed. So yeah, um, what the promise of this book was is that uh, not only are we going to get a streamlined uh, timeline for the Marvel Universe, but it's also supposed to uh, reveal a lot of untold mysteries and uh, some revelations that should shake the foundations of the Marvel Universe to its core. So I'm hoping for a little bit of that here, and I'm interested to see, just from the cover, they've got Cap, Human Torch, Bucky, um, it looks like Red Skull, Mystique, uh, I'm assuming that they're going to be tackling the birth of the X-Men. It has uh, Iron Fist there too, so I'm really hoping, really hoping they're going to be talking about Randall Orson, um, or Orson Randall. Um, really looking forward to that. And then uh, Doctor Strange is also on the cover as well, so I'm interested to see how all of these characters are covered in this story. Next up, we have Batman number 77, written by Tom King with art by Tony S. Daniel. Uh, this is continuing on the City of Bane storyline, which has been fantastic so far. And it looks like, especially from the cover, that we're going to be dealing more with the um, Flashpoint Batman, Thomas Wayne Batman, and his dealings with his Robin, Gotham Girl. So let's jump into the synopsis here. City of Bane continues. The last of the independent villains are on the run 
leaving Gotham City entirely to Bane and his cronies, including Flashpoint Batman and Gotham Girl. Though this means a semblance of peace on the streets, the iron grip of tyranny is squeezing all life out of Gotham. And with Bane's machinations keeping other heroes out, the city really needs the Batman to return. Is Bruce Wayne ready to face his toughest foes yet? His father and the man who broke his back? So yeah, um, alongside the main story of uh, Flashpoint Batman kind of becoming the sheriff of Gotham, uh, we've been looking at the long-awaited reunion between Selina Kyle and Bruce Wayne, so we got a little bit of that last issue, and that is, of course, going to be built upon for this issue. Um, this has been so good so far. You can really tell that Tom King has been working towards this as his uh, final act for uh, the Batman run, because there's so much that was in the earlier issues that are coming back to into play here. So I'm really looking forward to see how this pushes the story forward. Next up, we have Powers of X, number three of six, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by R.B. Silva. Um, let's do the synopsis real quick, and then uh, we'll talk about the book. As Xavier sows the seeds of the past, the X-Men's future blossoms into trouble for all mutantdom. So... More or less the same synopsis as uh, issue two. Um, this is going off of uh, Powers of X number two from last week, uh, which just lost out from uh, the pick of the week of last week because of the future stuff. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about the future stuff, um, especially when it's like talking about stuff like the phalanx in like a thousand years. Um, doing like Ascension and stuff. And I'm sure that all of this is going to come into play because Jonathan Hickman, as we all know, loves the long game. But I was much more interested in the second issue um, for the Xavier, Moira, and Magneto scenes than I was for the um, future scenes, including like a three to four page kind of uh, breakdown on, you know, what's the deal with fa with phalanx and like what are the classifications of artificial intelligence um so powers of x number two was kind of the first stumbling block for me but um i'm hoping this book can kind of recover um arby silva is doing some great work on art and i'm really hoping that uh he gets to shine a little bit more in the next issue and then finally the big book of the week for me at least is superman year one number two of three written by frank miller with art by john romita jr this book is one of the most polarizing uh stories that we've seen in some time and i would say probably just off the top of my head, probably one of the most polarizing DC Black Label books. Um, there is a lot of people who really like this interpretation, and there are a lot of people who hate this interpretation. Um, for me, I kind of sit in the middle. There are certain aspects of it that I think uh, really need to be improved upon. Um, John Armita Jr. still has a really tough time drawing children, and you can never tell how old they are because they have such adult features, just like bobbleheads on like tiny bodies. But um, seeing as how Clark is now in his young adulthood, that shouldn't be an issue. I'm really uh, concerned with the whole plot point of Superman joining the military. Uh, I feel like that opens up a lot of... Um, 
complicated questions, and I'm sure that it's going to be addressed here, but I am still cautiously optimistic. So let's jump into the synopsis here. Clark Kent's journey of self-discovery continues in the second installment of Frank Miller and John Romita Jr.'s remarkable reimagining of Superman's origin story. This chapter takes young Clark to the Pacific Coast and beyond, as he discovers a place as sensational as he is, Atlantis. There, he meets new people, finds love, clashes with gargantuan beasts, and discovers the man he's meant to be. So, Atlantis... Uh, we're talking possibly running into Aquaman, Mera, anybody else who is in that realm. Uh, the cover has him kind of standing in the gaping jaws of a, I'm assuming, an underwater sea creature. And he's uh, wearing some form of a Superman suit. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to get it in this issue. This is only three issues. So if they don't end up giving him the suit until issue three, I guess that makes sense, but I'm really kind of looking for more of the Clark that I know, rather than the Clark that um, Frank Miller wants to write, so I'm hoping to get more of that in this issue, so um, we'll see. I'm looking forward to picking it up, though, and finding out. So to recap, we have Nightwing, number 63, Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 2 of 12, History of the Marvel Universe, number 2 of 6, Batman, number 77, Powers of X, number... Ah, oh, Powers of... I keep screwing that up. It's Powers of 10, number 3 of 6. And finally, Superman Year 1, number 2 of 3. And that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. Let me know if I missed any books. Of course, feel free to uh, let me know on either of our social media, Instagram or Twitter, at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod. Or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to GeekSplained at gmail.com. Um, also, let me know if uh, you're looking forward to any of, the, any of these books. If you have been reading them, what do you think of Superman Year One so far? How have you been liking the Jonathan Hickman X-Men run? And what are you feeling about some of these uh, future sequences that I'm personally not really a fan of? Um, always looking forward to having those conversations with you guys. I've been having some really, really good conversations when it comes to comics recently, and I'm just looking forward to having more. All right, so I'm going to do a super quick wrap-up because this has been going for a while. I want to say thank you once again to Andrew for uh, stopping by and talking all things Batman Long Halloween. And I want to say thank you to you for uh, sticking with us. I know we uh, tend to get a little rambly. We talk about some stuff uh just because this is exciting. We don't see each other very often, so it was good to finally like sit down, kind of have a conversation about something that we both are passionate about. So I want to say thank you for uh, listening to our conversation. It was a lot of fun, and we will definitely be having Andrew back on uh, very soon. But what do you think about the long Halloween? Let me know everything and anything that you have to say about uh Everything that we talked about today, from the really disappointing, really disappointing Sony news uh, to Long Halloween itself, the boys, any of the comics that we talked about today, I want to hear about it all. We are still trying to get a uh, Geek Explained mailbag going. I think this week it's probably better that we don't, uh, just because this is getting a little long in the tooth. Um, but we will definitely be 
trying to pick up the first edition of the Geeksplain mailbag in next week's episode, episode number 71. We are 70 episodes in, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for sticking with us this whole time. Um, feel free to send any uh, questions you have, whether they're questions for me, whether they're questions you have about comics, anything that you want to know, please send them to geeksplained at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, geeksplained or uh, at geeksplained pod. That's at geeksplained pod. That's both Instagram and Twitter. Give us a follow, check us out. And uh, also, that'll help you stay up to date with all the goings on with this podcast. And then finally, I got to plug it. Please give us a. Uh, review and a rating on itunes it helps us out tremendously to get us to more listeners just like you so thank you for all your support thank you for helping us get to 70 episodes it still blows my mind um and i'm really excited for another 70 episodes so i'm gonna go ahead and sign off here stay tuned once again next week for episode number 71 featuring the next episode in our weekly review for the boys as well as of course our comics picks for next week hopefully some better news in the sony and disney developments as well as the first edition of the geek Explained mailbag uh but for now for geek Explained, this is eric azana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time <laughs>